Chapter 4 Basic Questions of Human Coexistence We have Stone Age emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Edward O. Wilson, Ant Researcher If we want to improve the traditional institutions of our coexistence, we must first investigate why people live together in certain forms, what drives them, and what role certain institutions play. This can help us determine how successful and peaceful systems of coexistence could be created that require neither a new man nor any other change in our evolutionary character. 1. What drives us? Show me the incentives and I will predict the outcome. Charlie Munger, Legendary Investor Man always and everywhere reacts to incentives, whether he has free will or not. Understanding this is essential to understanding the world. Whenever a certain result is undesirable or appears questionable, one should ask oneself which trade incentives were given for it. If we start with this approach, we will also see why Western systems are in such difficulties and why alternatives in other parts of the world do not really work either. In a sense, the main natural incentive for every human being is to increase their well-being. This is no different from other mammals. After securing basic human needs, this means raising the standard of living. The standard of living includes not only material things, but also immaterial advantages such as power, influence, knowledge, and especially social acceptance. There will always be individual ascetics who, for moral or rational reasons, can resist incentives to increase their well-being. But these are rare exceptions, and even in these cases, there are incentives and objectives that ultimately explain what they are doing. The quest to maximize self-interest is also characteristic of elected or appointed representatives of the state, such as politicians and civil servants. Although they do not have the opportunity to generate economic success through direct profits, their position can certainly increase their income and influence. And that is what they do. The same applies to church representatives and other representatives of the institutionalized common good. They also usually act in their own interest. He who feels better when he helps others also acts selfishly. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just important to understand. The existence of incentives or misincentives explains almost everything. 1. Anyone who invests a lot of money in a company whose founders and managers have not invested any money of their own should not be surprised if things go wrong. 2. Those who pay social benefits for doing nothing or just having children, which are nearly as high or higher than a wage that low-skilled workers can earn on the market, should not be surprised if they neither work nor are looking for work. 3. Anyone who taxes companies heavily, regulates all their activities comprehensively, and even prescribes whom they have to employ, should not be surprised if no one wants to become an entrepreneur any longer. 4. Those who give power to politicians without them having the slightest economic disadvantage if something goes wrong should not be surprised if they make irresponsible and bad decisions. 5. Anyone who opens his borders to immigrants from all over the world and provides them with social benefits above the average income in their countries of origin 
should not be surprised if endless armies of people come until national security and social systems finally collapse. All these are relatively simple correlations of cause and effect. You can ignore them, but not the consequences of ignoring them. The permanent creation of false incentives is one of the main reasons for the weaknesses of current political systems. But these are not generated by stupidity, but by the construction of our political systems which seduces politicians to set such false incentives. We will look at this using the welfare state as an example. Welfare state and failed incentive structure. Charity is considered the first Christian virtue. However, as soon as it is seen as an instrument of equality and as a law and raised to the state principle, it is an affliction of society. It is then a reversal of the principle that every person must bring forward what he consumes. Therefore, the consequence is always unproductive consumption. Too much care for the poor increases poverty, discourages self-help, and transfers responsibility to the state. It hampers work, diligence, austerity, and encourages idleness. Herman Wrench, Handbook of Economics, 1866 The welfare state is regarded by many as an essential achievement of modern societies. It should cover life risks such as hunger, illness, and poverty, and enable everyone to live in dignity. These objectives are honorable and legitimate. However, the welfare state is not a suitable vehicle for achieving them in the long term. It ultimately leads to ruin, disempowers its inhabitants, and causes antisocial behavior. As a result, it worsens the conditions it was meant to combat. That is why the days of the welfare state are numbered, even if it still has so many supporters. Its main shortcoming is the systematic setting of false incentives. Politicians, administrators, and beneficiaries all face massive incentives to use the system to their own advantage. The welfare state is therefore also subject to the tragedy of the commons. Political Misincentives The most significant incentive for politicians is the purchase of votes through social benefits. In other words, short-term bribery of voters without taking into account the long-term consequences, an increase in child benefits, a lowering of the retirement age, an increase in health insurance benefits, an increase in social assistance, etc. The biggest election victory in the history of the German Conservative Party, CDU, so far was won by Konrad Adenauer in 1957. He succeeded in doing so because he was able to implement a pure pay-as-you-go system for pension insurance. He did this against the experts' expressed concerns and was thus able to significantly increase the average pension benefits immediately. And this has continued over the years, both in Germany and elsewhere. To the applause of voters and the media, social benefits have been steadily expanded into more and more areas and the level of benefits raised. Politicians who advocate cuts in benefits will sooner or later be voted out of office. Another political misincentive is the expansion of power through the expansion of the welfare state. The more issues assigned to the state, the more beneficiaries there are, and the more powerful the politicians. Therefore, the latter strive to achieve exactly that, 
the expansion of state responsibility regardless of the consequences. This incentive was already the basis for the original creation of the welfare state. Contrary to popular belief, the modern welfare state is not an achievement of social democracy. Rather, it was introduced from the top by the German Chancellor Bismarck at the end of the 19th century. The aim was to weaken the trade union's position of power and to strengthen workers' ties to the state. Instead of social self-help in trade unions and trade associations, a paternalistic solution was adopted. Bismarck saw a political danger in independent, propertied workers. Accordingly, the welfare state was expanded further and further. In Germany, compulsory health insurance was originally limited to lower-income workers, but has been steadily expanded. In 1927, unemployment insurance was added. Nursing care insurance was introduced in 1995. Since 2009, everyone living in Germany has finally been obliged to insure themselves against illness. Freelancers must also take out compulsory pension insurance. The self-employed are bound to follow. It is of no concern whether these people actually want the insurance or not. Bureaucratic Misincentives The reward of failure is the misincentive for any administration. More social problems, more people in need, mean larger budgets and more staff for the social bureaucracy. Since every bureaucracy strives to increase power and influence, there is a constant impulse from this side to not solve problems or declare them settled, but to do the opposite. If gasoline prices rise, nobody considers a reduction in the mineral oil tax in order to make it easier for the socially disadvantaged to participate in traffic again. Instead, subsidies or petrol vouchers for the needy are proposed because this requires another authority and increases the power of administration and politics. A considerable part of the social expenditure no longer benefits those in need. It moves directly into the constantly growing redistribution machine. Benefit-Related Misincentives the disincentive for the beneficiaries leads to over-exploitation of the services offered, even without need, as they appear to be free. The welfare state punishes modesty and restraint and rewards overconsumption and dishonesty. After all, with the mercilessness of a natural law, every subsidy increases the amount of subsidized goods. When the British colonial rule wanted to control a cobra plague in India, a reward was offered to anyone who delivered a dead cobra. As a result, the cobra population grew to an unprecedented level. Cobras were bred just to gain the premium. A few years ago, Germany was held in suspense by a nationwide strike of train drivers. When important negotiations were due, the union chairman suddenly disappeared. The press had already suspected internal power struggles when it became known that the boss had only gone on a treatment holiday to which he had been entitled. This treatment had already been postponed several times and would have lapsed if it had been postponed again. As a child of the welfare state, he obviously had no choice but to leave the fighting troops at the moment of utmost importance. Otherwise, the claim would have lapsed unused. So it is not a question of good intentions or not. The result is decisive. If people are paid to be poor, unable to work, ill, or single parents, 
these conditions will also occur more frequently. Another false incentive of the welfare state is to eliminate private precaution and the assumption of responsibility. Why should you pay attention to your own state of health if you are entitled to full sick leave payment in the event of illness? Why take precautions for life risks or encourage people close to you to do so? After all, everyone has a legal right to necessary livelihood. This includes, in Germany, visits to the theater, cinema, concerts, telephone, radio, TV, and Internet access, as well as newspaper subscriptions. In addition to these standard benefits, there is one-off aid for special purchases, the complete assumption of rental and insurance costs, and a Christmas bonus. Furthermore, there is an incentive to constantly demand new services. Contrary to popular belief, the welfare state does not predominantly shift resources from the rich to the poor. Instead, there is always a redistribution between all income groups in order to grant special benefits to certain groups such as single mothers, students, theater lovers, those affected by natural disasters, etc. Since the redistribution does not take place in a particular direction, it is difficult to estimate who has a net advantage and who does not. Once an organized interest group learns that, in the name of social justice, it only has to demand financial support loud enough, it will repeat this behavior. Other social groups follow along, well aware that otherwise they are only paying agencies for the benefits of the more active groups. This problem is exacerbated by migratory movements. Due to the high Social Security contributions, qualified payers are leaving the country and those who are unwilling to work are migrating into the country. I am personally aware of some cases of executives who immigrated from Germany and Austria to Switzerland. One of the reasons for this was the significant reduction in Social Security contributions in Switzerland. Conversely, an Asian immigrant once told me that there was actually no incentive for him to work once he was in Germany because, as a family father, he would be entitled to social assistance at a level that would exceed a minister's salary in his home country. Those who postulate a universal human right to live at the expense of others should not be surprised if this right is finally claimed. Someone who spends 10 hours a day on hard work in a developing country and carries home $100 U.S. a month will indeed consider whether he should rather settle down in Central Europe. Here, he gets $1,000 U.S. a month for doing nothing and an excellent infrastructure to boot. Consequently, in Switzerland, for example, only one in seven of those refugees actually granted asylum ends up pursuing paid employment. And the larger the family, the larger the claims. It became known that a Syrian refugee in Germany who has four wives and 23 children is entitled to approximately 30,000 euros in social assistance per month without ever having contributed anything. The average German household income is around 3,700 euros per month. Tragically, this incentive system leads to productive high performers in their home countries being tempted to immigrate to welfare states in order to become transfer recipients there. Both welfare state immigrants and immigrants act humanely by seeking to raise their standard of living. They act on the incentives offered to them. 
As a result, the welfare state loses donors and gains beneficiaries. It follows from these realities that the combination of open borders and the welfare state cannot function. It is a recipe for disaster. The persistent refusal of Western elites to acknowledge this fact could deal a death blow to the welfare state earlier than expected. The consequences of the above-mentioned misincentives are serious. Debt overload, paternalism, and antisocial behavior. Debt Overload The welfare state is a debt state that will no longer be able to pay off the promised benefits to future generations. Due to the above-mentioned incentive structure, more and more payers are being withdrawn from the system, while at the same time the number of beneficiaries is growing. In parallel, benefit levels are rising steadily and the social bureaucracy is expanding. This not only increases government spending constantly, but also reduces potential economic growth because fewer and fewer people are working in the productive sector. However, less economic growth in turn leads to an increase in the number of people in need. A vicious circle has been set in motion. The welfare state is fighting more and more desperately the problems it has caused itself. Pay-as-you-go systems are accelerating the path to financial ruin. Most social insurances, pension, illness, unemployment, are based on the pay-as-you-go system, that is, the amounts paid in are immediately passed out to the beneficiaries. Since the available funds are simply redistributed, nothing is saved, no investment is made, and no income is generated. As payers become fewer and fewer, get older, and have fewer and fewer children, the system has a serious problem. For decades, the enormous construction-related cost increase of the social systems can therefore only be countered by the constant expansion of public debt. The mass immigration of the unskilled, conceived as a solution, will not solve this problem, but only make it worse. Reforms of the welfare state are either superficial or leave only a slight bend in the steadily rising expenditure curve over the coming 15 to 20 years. Consequently, the rate of government spending in Western democracies has risen from an average of 12% to almost 50% over the last 100 years. Expenditure attributable to the welfare state already accounts for more than 50% of the state budget in Germany. In the last 40 years, German national debt has grown from 167 billion to 2,000 billion euros. If all the pension and social entitlements of the municipalities and federal states are taken into account, the figure is 8,000 billion or 8 trillion euros, respectively. In the business world, a company in a comparable situation would have had to file for bankruptcy due to over-indebtedness. In other Western welfare states, the situation is similar. If the number of takers continues to grow while the number of givers continues to decline and the social bureaucracy grows, the ruin of state and social budgets will only be a question of time. Fiscal trickery by central banks, such as downward manipulation of interest rates or the purchase of their own government bonds, can only delay this result, not prevent it. Paternalism The welfare state is an authoritarian state. The government orders what has to be done. The citizen has to obey. 
regardless of whether they want their income to be evenly distributed over all phases of their lives as prescribed by the statutory pension insurance or not, regardless of whether they would prefer minimal health insurance only against high risks. Individual life planning is becoming increasingly prescribed in the system. This results in increasing control, paternalism, and thus a restriction of freedom. The citizen is both prevented from going his own way and from having his own experiences and learning from them. The path to immaturity is mapped out. And what actually gives one the right to force peaceful fellow humans into memberships that they do not want to enter? Antisocial Behavior The welfare state corrupts people by promoting antisocial behavior. There are massive incentives to behave dishonestly and indecently. Dependence takes the place of personal precaution. Responsibility is replaced by indolence. In place of philanthropy, there is an effort to milk the system. The desire to prove oneself is replaced by the search for unearned income. Gratitude is replaced by an aggressive sense of entitlement. The demand of social groups for redistribution, which is omnipresent in the welfare state, is also tantamount to calling for a crime. Because redistribution is only possible by taking away the fruits of others' labor, the consequences are never-ending fights for distribution, social discord, and envy. There is no generally accepted legal principle that allows two people to expropriate a third party. Even personal misfortune or inability do not justify the exploitation of others. Defenders of the welfare state will object that solidarity and social justice could not be established otherwise. But solidarity forced under the threat of violence is not solidarity. Social justice is indefinable and always depends on where you are in the system. What qualifies one person to live at the expense of another and who decides who gets what? What right does A have to determine what B has to pay to C? The minimum principle as the core problem. If the problems are so obvious, why is the welfare state so popular? We find the answer in the minimum principle. The conditioning of humans according to the minimum principle, that is, the attempt to obtain as much as possible for as little effort as possible, is evolutionarily reasonable. It has ensured that we are always on the lookout for tools and methods to generate more profit with less effort. This, in turn, has led to the fact that today, thanks to technology, the average person in most countries can live in a state of affluence that was previously only accessible to privileged upper classes. If this disposition now meets with political power, a problem arises. Due to the state monopoly on the use of force, politics can promise benefits that seem to cost the recipients nothing. From their point of view, this is an advantage. No effort, yet profit. That sounds like a good deal. Politics include not only obvious bribes of voters, such as the granting of child benefits or free health care, and soon perhaps even an unconditional basic income, but also legal regulations that an interest group wishes, for example, provisions to protect against dismissal or the ban on nuclear energy. The majority of the moment demands all manner of short-term advantages, zeitgeist fashions, unconditional promises, and comparable 
free offers. Of course, someone has to pay for it in the end, but disguising the cost is one of the most important services provided by politics. In theory, this problem can be overcome by using reason and persuasion. In practice, the minimum principle is stronger. Politicians or rulers who advocate cuts in benefits will sooner or later be voted out of office or replaced. Otto von Bismarck, the famous German chancellor and inventor of the welfare state, logically called it state socialism. At the end of his life, he drew the following conclusion. It is possible that once I am dead, our policy will perish. But state socialism is cramming its way through. Anyone who takes up this thought will come to the helm. The following recurring pattern results from these insights. 1. Almost all people want to increase their standard of living. They want to do this in the simplest possible way. 2. The easiest way to increase your material standard of living is to take something away from others. 3. Most, however, find it difficult to simply march into a shop and take goods without payment or take their neighbor's money. 4. It is easier for them to hire a third party to do the job who will tell them that the whole thing is legal and who will also wrap the mantle of morality. 5. That is why people turn to the state. For the state is the only institution that is allowed to take away the fruits of others' labor unpunished. However, this does not change the character of the process which, in the same society, would otherwise constitute theft or robbery. Thou shalt not steal. That's the real populism nobody talks about. 6. Governments and politicians serve these wishes, otherwise they will be voted out or removed in favor of those who do so. 7. Gradually more and more social groups find out how to use the power of the state for their own purposes. The state, not economic activity, becomes the main source for raising your standard of living. 8. Fewer and fewer people end up working in the productive sector. Fight over distribution intensifies and public debt grows. 9. Finally, the state runs out of money. The resulting crisis leads to radical reforms or even systemic changes. 10. The whole process starts anew. Unfortunately, the dynamics described here also ensure that the state interferes more and more in private life. This is because intangible contributions are also distributed, that is, regulations in favor of the wishes of certain interest groups. The possibility of leading one's life according to one's own taste, and thus human diversity par excellence, is becoming increasingly restricted. Since in democracies in particular, but not only there, almost every interest group tries to take their personal wishes into account, the number of laws, the tax burden, and the national debt inevitably increase over time. 2. How can power be limited? Anyone who expects reasonable decisions from politics has not understood that the will to power is greater than all reason. Roland Bader, Economist and Publicist If the combination of political power and the human minimum principle is the problem, one could try to change man and his evolutionary behavior. 
This has been tried very often, especially by politics and religion. Success has so far failed to materialize, which does not prevent the followers of this variant from trying it over and over again. The other approach would be to break or at least limit political power. This has been worked on with mixed success for several centuries. Let's take a closer look at some of these attempts. The violence problem and the monopoly of force. One of the basic teachings of history is that people must organize themselves in some form, otherwise they cannot resist the aggression of foreign groups. In this respect, joining together is inevitable. If people do not pull their strength with others, they are simply conquered and controlled. That would also be the fate of self-determined but defenseless anarchists, particularly after they had accumulated a certain level of well-being. Basically, this is the situation Thomas Hobbes was assuming when he wrote his Leviathan. Although there has never been and never will be an authentic fight of all against all as a state of nature, man has always been a herd animal and as such tends to form packs. This is still the case today under appropriate circumstances. Even in the lawless areas of Brazilian favelas, rankings and cooperation are developing. But the true core of Hobbes' approach is that the unorganized individual or the weak group are constantly running the risk of being plundered by larger or stronger groups wandering around. The physical struggle for scarce goods is always present in Hobbes' state of nature. Agriculture, trade, science, and the arts do not come about. This state is unsatisfactory and does not allow freedom because others are constantly preventing one from doing what one wants and even taking away the fruits of one's work by force. And the alternative of joining forces with neighbors on a case-by-case -case basis to form alliances is far less secure and usually more burdensome than an entity that provides exclusive and binding protection of life, limb, and property for all. For this reason, the institution of the monopoly of force has, over time, established itself in the developed regions of the world. This refers to an institution, usually referred to as the police, which has the exclusive right to prevent the use of force by citizens for their own purposes, including retaliation for undisputedly suffered injustice, and which is the only one allowed to threaten or use force to this end. Those who are prepared to use violence are told, under threat of violence, that they must refrain from using violence to achieve their own goals. On the outside, that is, as protection against organized violent groups that did not belong to the community, a military was built up. Such systems have been successful and have prevailed over alternatives. That is why there are states and state monopolies of force all over the world today. Even criminals prefer such a system because their stolen, robbed, or swindled property cannot be taken away by force at the next best opportunity. Yet, in many places around the world, people cannot live in safety. The police aren't there when you need them and even avoid some neighborhoods completely. Some are completely corrupt and part of the problem. As long as the rulers themselves can live in safety, they have little incentive to offer the same high level of safety for all. Basically, however, any state that cannot guarantee the security of its citizens is a failed state. It can be of little use. The obligation of the citizen towards the state ends 
when the state is no longer in a position to protect him. Politics Hobbes correctly recognized that a state monopoly of force creates a peaceful order that ultimately benefits all inhabitants. Unfortunately, he did not realize that this advantage would turn into its opposite if the state used its monopoly of force to achieve goals that go beyond the enforcement and protection of peace. That is when the state begins to make politics and imposes political goals, which are always only the goals of a certain group of citizens, on everyone. In such systems, the victims of partisan politics are even more defenseless than they would be in the state of nature. The state's monopoly of force is now directed against them, and they must tolerate, for example, large portions of their income and assets being taken away from them and redistributed without recourse to self-defense. However, if the state monopoly of force becomes an instrument of politically motivated partiality, then the original concept loses its effect, and behind the facade of the peaceful state, a perpetual, this time political, struggle of rival groups arises. Politics thus becomes an invisible civil war, whose discreteness stems from the fact that the victims of state interference have no realistic chance of defending themselves. The peace achieved is illusory, based on the effective suppression of divergent interests. It is therefore counterproductive to give the state a power that goes beyond guaranteeing internal and external security. Because once peace is established, the only legitimate governmental task is to ensure that residents do not force their will upon others, and the state itself may only use force to enforce this principle. This is not a new insight. It can already be found among the thinkers John Locke, Wilhelm von Humboldt, Ludwig von Mises, or even Ludwig Erhard, the architect of Germany's post-war economic miracle, according to whom the problems begin when the state ceases to be an arbitrator and starts to become a player. Of course, this lesson is regularly ignored because it remains attractive to have politics solve problems. But in the end, politics means imposing one's view of the world on all others. But people are different. What is right for one person can be wrong for another. Subjectively different values and objectively different life situations cause any political solution to leave behind those who have been forced to do something against their will. To make politics means taking sides and making the wishes of some the yardstick for everyone, and we must not forget, if necessary, by force. How is that legitimate? Social Contract According to Hobbes, citizens have given the state these extensive powers so that they can live in safety. This view was later complemented by Locke's and especially Rousseau's view of a social contract, a voluntary agreement between the parties comparable to a civil contract. It is supposed to exist between citizen and state, or at least the citizens should have concluded one among themselves, in which they cede a part of their sovereignty to the state and accept the consequences. This view still prevails. As a rule, the constitution of a state and the resulting order is equated with Rousseau's social contract. It suffers from the fact that a contract must also be concluded in accordance with the rules of reciprocity developed over centuries under civil law. If this is not the case, then it is something else for which the very concept of a contract would not be appropriate.
According to most legal systems, it would be questionable whether this alleged partnership agreement can be regarded as a contract at all. There is a lack of certainty in its services and considerations because the citizen must pay taxes, but the use of the tax is left completely to the discretion of the state. There is neither a specific claim on the part of the citizen to certain state services nor any enforceability regarding the proper use of tax revenue. But according to civil law, in case of doubt, any contract in which there is no agreement on all important points is considered null and void. Thus, for example, many citizens expect the state to offer a certain level of physical security, a certain infrastructure and social security. If they knew that under constitutional law there is no or only a very vague claim to it, but an unconditional duty to pay taxes, they would probably reconsider their approval of the respective system. In practically all legal systems worldwide, a contract requires at least identical declarations of intent. Do the citizens really agree that the government, with an appropriate parliamentary majority, can amend all the rules, including the Constitution, and increase the tax rate exorbitantly, for example? And even if a Constitution expressly stipulates this right, and this Constitution has been adopted by a majority, what about those who voted against ratification? By which right are they subject to the Constitution? You as a citizen may not agree with the use of your taxes in many areas, and you may also disagree that there is a group of people who decide on the use of these funds without your consent. Even Rousseau recognized this problem. He therefore calls for 100% of all citizens to agree to the first-time application of a social contract, including its amendment mechanisms, because everyone is affected. Without a prior agreement, what would give a minority the obligation to submit to a majority voting? From where have hundred to the right who want a ruler to vote for the ten who don't? The law of majority voting itself is based on agreement and requires at least one-time unanimity. This is only consistent, but has never been implemented, and therefore, this aspect of Rousseau's social contract is usually withheld. And this is exactly what all conventional constitutions suffer from. In reality, they are contracts at the expense of third parties, namely those who have not agreed. This is a legal procedure that would be invalid under civil law because there is no concordant declaration of intent by those affected. According to the civil law of practically all states, it is therefore not possible for contracting parties to commit third parties to a service without the third party's consent. The whole thing is exacerbated by the fact that the alleged social contract is constantly changed exclusively by one side, namely the state, without the individual being able to do anything about it. Thus, even the person who originally agreed to the whole thing suddenly finds himself in a completely different system that he never consented to. When two parties conclude a service contract in civil life, they have previously agreed on the scope and cost of the service. If the service is provided poorly or not at all, the customer has the right to reduce or refuse payment. Neither party can unilaterally change the terms of the contract during the period of the contract. Citizens, on the other hand, must pay all taxes without having a clear counterclaim. 
If they are dissatisfied because state benefits in areas such as safety, education, road construction, health, and pension provision are getting worse and worse, they have no right to reduce or withhold taxes. The state can increase taxes to any extent. And it is precisely this constant deviation from the principle of reciprocity that is one of the main reasons for the crisis of democratic states. Rule of Law and Constitution Justice being taken away, then, what are states but great robberies? Augustine of Hippo, Roman philosopher and theologian. When looting becomes a way of life for a group in society, over time it creates a legal system that legalizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. Claude Frédéric Bastiat, Economist and Politician Even under the fiction of a social contract, it would never have been pleasant to be at the mercy of the unpredictable whims of an absolutist monarch as the owner of the monopoly of force. As a result, the absolute power of rulers has been limited over time. On the one hand, these limitations could come from the ruler himself as voluntary self-restraints, knowing well that he would be forcibly removed if he pushed it too far. On the other hand, princes, religious dignitaries or influential families, and later other classes as well, were granted the right to a voice in affairs and they insisted on its observance. At the very moment, however, when these rights were no longer actively demanded, they quickly returned to the ruler. If he was weak himself, he lost them to the ruling oligarchy. At all times, there were powerless and powerful emperors, but there was never one thing, that nobody had the power. If anything was unclear about it, civil war broke out. This seems to be almost a law of nature. There is no power vacuum in human affairs. Gradually, therefore, written restrictions on absolute rule have developed. This has made it easier for the beneficiaries to claim recourse than it had been under informal and verbal agreements. Documents such as the Magna Carta of 1215 and the English Bill of Rights of 1689 eventually led to what we now call constitutions. The absolute monarchy became the constitutional monarchy. Basically, this is just the implementation of the principle of reciprocity in the form of the golden rule. If everyone, including the powerful, adheres to the rules, this narrows the leeway of the powerful, but also protects them from the arbitrariness of those who are pushing for power. Those in power exchange a large but uncertain range of maneuver for a smaller but secure one. All in all, this is a benefit for everyone, as energies can now be directed to other productive areas that enhance the quality of life. Finally, the rule of law has developed from this. All actions by the rulers are subject to the primacy and reservation of the law, and even for the simple citizen or subject, Everything is permitted that is not expressly forbidden. The primacy of the law means that the laws prevail over the ideas of those in power. The reservation of statutory power means that all acts of authority require a legal entitlement. If this is not the case, the exercise of authority is illegal. However, the rule of law has a problem that Bastiat pointed out as early as 1850.
Anyone who controls the legislative power can assemble any law. Every group in power can arbitrarily make its own rules as long as it complies with the formal procedures, but even a constitutional band of robbers remains a band of robbers. Finally, in order to solve this problem, attempts have been made to limit such arbitrariness through the adoption of unalterable constitutional articles and the creation of independent Supreme Courts. These efforts have been met with moderate success. If the law or the Constitution stands in the way of government action, it will be amended or interpreted accordingly. Especially, the courts often play an inglorious role because they assume a regulatory competence theoretically reserved for the legislator. They are actually only supposed to supervise the observance of the rules. Hence, we observe a constant political struggle for the occupation of seats on national supreme courts. Of course, even jurisprudence is shaped by subjective attitudes, and every constitutional article is interpreted by every judge according to his own political convictions. Even constitutions can therefore in fact be changed or interpreted almost arbitrarily. The basic law of the Federal Republic of Germany, passed in 1949, has been amended 62 times since it came into force. The harder-to-amend U.S. Constitution has only undergone 18 changes in over 200 years. But the judges have often come up with contemporary interpretations, often contrary to the clear wording of the document. The philosopher Anthony de Jazet puts it this way, The Constitution is like a chastity belt whose key is always within the wearer's reach. After all, this practice leads to a situation in which the political establishment no longer even cares about formal compliance with the law. The rule of law is eroding. Take Germany, for example. Against existing EU law, the Merkel government has pushed ahead with a so-called Greek bailout plan against existing public law treaties, decided to phase out nuclear power against the Constitution and EU law, opening the borders to illegal immigrants from countries where they are not under threat. This trend reaches further and further downward within the state. Top civil servants in Germany complain that in government projects, the mere reference to a legal conflict can now be construed as malicious and inhumane. It is therefore not surprising that organizations and companies jump on this bandwagon and demand flexible action from the administration, actually demanding the granting of illegal permits. If it serves the good cause and is presented accordingly in the media, there are always majorities for it. This even applies to acts openly directed against the legal system, such as the granting of church asylum for rejected asylum seekers or the occupation of other people's houses by left-wing groups for years at a time. In the end, there are only a few administrative officials and some courts who continue to insist on compliance with the law. However, this is no way for a state under the rule of law to exist. As long as laws are in force, they must be observed. If these are considered no longer appropriate, the legislative body must pass new laws by the means provided for. These laws are then applied with no retroactive effect from the date on which they are issued. 
The increasing ignorance of these elementary principles leads to the rule of law slowly slipping into an arbitrary state in which the existing law is only selectively applied and in which it can be violated without any sanction if the political leadership considers it expedient. But this is nothing more than the arbitrary rule usually associated with absolutism. If the law is no longer the sole yardstick for the administration's actions, other criteria come to the fore. A friend from Berlin, who runs several restaurants there, reports that he had to carry out an extensive approval procedure, costing considerable time and money, in order to enlarge part of one of his restaurants. When the approval was finally granted, he pointed out the following to the responsible civil servant. Just across the street, an Arab always expands his restaurant area considerably and, apparently illegally, onto the street during the summer. He wondered if that wouldn't require a permit. The officer then closed the door and said, We know the case, but if we send our officers there, we are threatened with blows. Unfortunately, this is not an isolated case. It means that the rule of law is nothing more than an empty shell, which is negligible under the threat of violence. The law is now only applied to those who tolerate it. Moreover, the rule of the jungle applies. The incentives provided by this state of affairs are devastating. On the one hand, lawbreakers are increasingly aware that they can get away with anything by threatening violence. This de facto power vacuum is increasingly being filled by criminal clans and organized crime. On the other hand, the law-abiding population will gradually come to the conclusion that it should resort to the same methods. The rule of law, and with it the monopoly of force, are coming to an end. Human Rights O oh, rare happiness of times, when you can say what you want and say what you think. Publius Cornelius Tacitus, historian in ancient Rome. Could we protect ourselves from arbitrary changes in law by establishing inalienable individual rights? The idea is a relatively new development. For thousands of years, it was self-evident that slaves, serfs, and other subjects had fewer rights than, for example, nobility and bourgeoisie. Until well into the 20th century, women had fewer rights in most societies than men, and this is still the case in Sharia-based societies. If one takes the golden rule seriously, it becomes clear that the principle of absolute rights to which every individual is entitled makes sense. Because if I claim that I have certain rights, then I have to grant them to my fellow man. Otherwise, he could also claim that he has more rights than I do. A peaceful and fruitful compromise solution is therefore when everyone is granted the same rights. Beyond mere equality before the law, human rights cover the area of central importance to every individual, namely the integrity of life and limb, freedom of movement, and a certain freedom of action, including freedom of expression and assembly and freedom of contract. The idea is that these rights cannot be overruled by religion, ideology, majority voting, or other legal assertions and acts of government. Because those acts can change, and even if these changes are positive for the individual in some cases, things can look quite different under the next government. 
Therefore, everyone is on the safe side if certain rights are inviolable to each individual. The existence of individual human rights promotes peaceful and fruitful coexistence. I'll let you have your rights, you let me have mine. This conclusion makes sense worldwide. As such, it is not culturally dependent, even if some cultures still refuse to accept it. There is therefore no need for a divine or natural law or other transcendent exaltation of this process. It is not even necessary to resort to the construct of self-ownership, according to which I belong to myself and therefore do not have to tolerate interventions in my limb and life and my freedom of action. Human rights have not fallen from heaven, but people have agreed to grant them to each other so that every individual has security and room for action, regardless of the system in which they live. Corresponding declarations, such as the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations, spread widely after the Second World War and have formulated what have become common values in some respects, despite their lack of binding force under international law, even communist systems officially acknowledging human rights. The cancellation of this consensus by the majority of Islamic states by means of the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights in Islam of 1990, according to which all human rights are subject to the reservation of Sharia, cannot therefore be overestimated in its importance. It provides the ideological ammunition for the clashes between secular and divine order, which are likely to increase in severity due to the surplus of young men in Islamic countries. But there is another problem. Human rights are properly understood rights of defense. They protect everyone from interfering with their body, life, property, or the core area of their freedom of action. Since state monopolies of force exist worldwide and have already committed themselves to the protection of these points, human rights are therefore primarily rights of defense against the almighty state. So far, so good. Unfortunately, we have overstepped the mark practically to the point of actually turning human rights into their opposite. Instead of limiting rights to defense and liberty, the well-intentioned have added more and more so-called participatory rights. These include rights such as the right to work, the right to free education, the right to a humane existence with housing, clothing, medical care, satisfactory remuneration, and so on. What is completely lacking is the understanding that these rights can only be asserted at the expense of third parties and only by an all-powerful state. They are in direct conflict with the rights of defense. If I cannot afford a humane apartment, then someone else has to pay for it. Who enforces this against whom and who decides what constitutes a humane existence? As things stand, this can only be the state which thereby intervenes in the property rights and freedom of action of its citizens. In other words, the fundamental rights originally conceived as a right of defense against the state are transformed into powers of intervention which the state has against its citizens and which cannot or must not defend themselves against them. It is therefore not surprising that the existence of participatory rights has become a constant cause of struggles for distribution. 
The recent idea of an unconditional basic income is only the logical consequence of believing that you have the right to live at the expense of others without having to pay anything in return. This doesn't add up, of course. Ultimately, it can only be at the expense of those who are industrious and talented and therefore generate surpluses that can then be taken away from them. Finally, the state will have to force them to work in order to earn the basic income for the others. In another context, this configuration is called slavery. But there is no right to live at the expense of others. Rights at the expense of third parties are in truth privileges. They are an aberration that causes considerable discord. Properly understood, there is only one essential human right, namely the right to be left alone in order to be able to lead one's self-determined life. All other human rights are either legitimate derivatives thereof or illegitimate privileges at the expense of third parties. Democracy Anyone may publicly express his interest in the property of another and pursue this desire, provided he has access to the government. Therefore, in a democracy, everyone becomes a threat. Consequently, the desire for other people's property is systematically strengthened under democratic conditions. Hans Hermann Hopp, Philosopher and Democracy Critic No matter how different political attitudes may be, everyone agrees on one thing. Democracy is a good thing. For many, it is the only legitimate form of government. However, everyone seems to have their own idea of this term, as even North Korea describes itself as democracy. Democracy allegedly means allowing a plurality of opinion, respecting the rights of the individual, the commitment of the administration to the rule of law, the existence of human rights, to name but a few points that one finds in contemporary press articles. None of this is true. Democracy comes from Greek and initially only means rule by the state, people in the sense that the majority of the people entitled to vote decide. Majority rule would be a proper translation. We must insist on at least that much conceptual clarity as unclear language is an indication of unclear thinking. Those who use democracy as a synonym for everything good, true, and beautiful in the state are neither able to name nor to counteract undesirable developments. Majority rule means, first of all, that the majority can decide and impose its will on the minority, basically unlimited in all aspects of life. Such an unrestricted democracy can deprive individuals and minorities of their life, property, or freedom. We find evidence not only in the execution of Socrates, but in countless other historical examples, such as the expulsion of the U.S. Indians from the eastern states, the deprivation of the rights of previous owners in numerous socialist people's democracies, and even the events surrounding the Arab Spring when revolts broke out against the dictators there. In Egypt, for example, surveys show that a large majority of respondents were in favor of introducing democracy, but also of introducing Sharia law, in particular the stoning of adulterers. 84% even believed that apostasy from Islam should be punished by death. That, too, is a democratic decision. 
Despite its strength in facilitating peaceful transfers of power, unrestricted democracy alone is therefore not a suitable means of ensuring peaceful and prosperous coexistence among a wide range of people. It is only the constitutional, liberal, state that guarantees personal and economic freedoms, not only by establishing the rule of law, but also guarantees the individual rights that are also valid vis-a-vis the majority and the rulers. But a liberal constitutional state can also exist without democracy, for example, in a constitutional monarchy. In a democracy, it can only unfold its beneficial effect as long as there is a fundamental willingness to adhere to the rule of law. Since, as has been shown, the majority can deviate from this and even change the Constitution as a whole, no democracy can ultimately be effectively restricted. In view of the experience of the last 200 years, the corresponding attempts must be regarded as failures. The problem that our social systems are treaties at the expense of third parties is particularly evident in democracy. The system works well as long as the state confines itself to safeguarding the life, freedom, and property of citizens, and, moreover, stays out of it. However, conflicts and crises inevitably arise when the state uses its monopoly of force to pursue political goals that go beyond the protection of life, liberty, and the property of its citizens. Unfortunately, due to the minimum principle, It is precisely this behavior that the majority demands. The principles that the person who finances something also determines the use of funds and that everyone only pays for what he has ordered are elementary and meaningful outflows of the principle of reciprocity. Their quasi-institutionalized repeal in democratic systems prevents lasting stability. That is why democracies tend to move in only one direction— namely towards more centralization, more collectivism, and more interference in more and more areas of life. This is according to the preferences of the mediocre, who make up the majority everywhere. Democracy empowers the majority to impose their views on others who do not share them. More democracy ultimately means politicizing all areas of life and all private decisions. While in a free market the resources gradually migrate to the intelligent and the skilled, which ultimately benefits everyone, this is not the case in democracy. Anyone who pays millions in taxes and has created hundreds or even thousands of jobs has exactly one vote. Just like the one who has spent his whole life funded by the state, abandoned all his apprenticeships, and has never read a book. Since, according to the standard distribution curve, there are more mediocre and weak people in every society than top performers, the former will prevail in democracy. On the other hand, they have little or no success on the market. It follows, any mass democracy, whether direct or parliamentary democracy, will inevitably develop into a social welfare state sooner or later, with the consequences outlined above. But redistributive systems can hardly be changed, because the number of those who profit from them is, in the end, always larger than that of net contributors. The financial ruin of the state is ultimately only a matter of time. In addition, decision-makers are not liable for the consequences of their actions. This observation also applies to both parliamentary and direct democracy. 
Those politicians in parliamentary democracy who do not suffer any disadvantage when they make devastating decisions, except that they are voted out while retaining all pension rights, have no incentive to make sensible long-term decisions. But they do have every incentive to buy votes at the taxpayer's expense. High taxes are supposed to be signs of a developed civilization. In reality, they are more likely a typical consequence of poor economics, a perpetual problem when the people involved spend other people's money, use it to buy popularity, and are, in fact, not accountable to anyone. Politicians who say they want to take responsibility are lying to themselves. What they want is to make decisions at the expense of others without having the slightest economic disadvantage if things go wrong. This means nothing more than the complete decoupling of power and responsibility. This is also the reason why there are no democratically managed companies anywhere in the world. No reasonable owner would make the management of a company or the appointment of the managing director dependent on the majority opinion of the employees. And yet this is supposed to work for the state? The American philosopher Thomas Sowell states succinctly, It is hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. Direct democracy is able to counterbalance the rule of politicians and parties. After all, the citizens can decide on real issues and also revise political decisions. Unlike the parties, they do not have to take into account any powerful interest groups. But direct democracy does not solve the problem of decoupling power and responsibility. In civil life, if you rob other people, you go to prison. If you make a bad business decision, you lose money or your business goes bankrupt. This is different in direct democracy. You can vote anonymously for a referendum that openly aims to expropriate fellow citizens. And anyone can vote by referendum for a stupid idea that costs billions, and everyone, including the people who voted against it, ends up paying. No one can ever be held accountable. After all, in democracies, no area of life is fundamentally excluded from political discussion and thus from majority opinion. Man, who is so keen on social acceptance that he has evolutionarily developed the habit of following the flock, forms his opinion intuitively at first according to the apparently prevailing view. Only later does he adjust his arguments in order to achieve consistency with his previous worldview. Everyone is susceptible to this, regardless of intelligence or education. In groups, intelligent are equally seducible herd animals, as Gustave Le Bon already observed in 1895. In everything that is the object of feeling, religion, politics, morality, sympathies, and antipathies, etc., the most excellent people rarely surpass the level of the ordinary individuals. Decisions of common interest, taken by a gathering of outstanding people, are not noticeably superior to those that would be taken by a gathering of fools. Linking the right to vote to a particular educational or vocational qualification will therefore not alleviate the problem, but may even aggravate it. Often enough, intelligent people, because of their imagination, are more receptive to ideologies that require pulling the wool over their own eyes. 
Unfortunately, opinions based on morality and indignation are much more readily accepted by all groups of the population than positions that have arisen as a result of reasonable consideration of the pros and cons. The majority of people do not want a rational problem solution with strict control of success. They want to feel good and belong to the right side. Politics satisfies this need. And because today's welfare states still lack existential, emotionally disturbing dangers such as wars, epidemics, or famines, politicians and social priests must constantly invent new grievances in order to maintain their own well-founded positions as admonishers and alleged problem solvers. Hence the incessant discovery of alleged discrimination, alleged poverty, alleged pressure to perform, or, more generally, the alleged inhumanity of the entire system. Hence the justice gaps that are being identified everywhere. Technologies that have been established for decades and are safe to use are suddenly being turned into imminent threats. Inequalities are considered outrageous. But in addition to wealth and social inequality, differences in gender, ethnicity, and talent are now considered unnatural and are labeled mere social constructs. From this moralistic perspective, any real inequality is absolutely unbearable, even urinals in men's toilets. Every now and then, mostly after a war or crisis, reason-based counterforces appear. These can only turn the wheel back a little bit, however, before things return to the same direction as before. As soon as some wealth has been accumulated, the same redistributors in humane guise are re-elected to power. In a democracy, there is simply not enough incentive for politicians to act sensibly, for they are only temporary political managers, not owners who could have a long-term interest in the stability of the community. They only receive their mandate in the course of a necessarily moralizing, outbidding competition for more justice. The journalist Roger Capel explains it. Angela Merkel started in 2003 as a free market reformer. When she would have lost the election by a hair's breadth because of her position, she swung clearly to the left. She even reversed some of the social reforms of her predecessor Schroeder. I well remember a dinner when we addressed the Chancellor about her policy turns. She only replied, If I govern Germany according to the recipes of your economic press, I will be voted out of office. Mrs. Merkel was quite right to realize this. Anyone who does not take part in the competition for more justice loses political power. The reward criterion for the democratically elected is therefore not the benefit for the community, but the maximum indignation of voters towards the democratic competitor who remains behind in the fight against the elimination of injustices. On the basis of these facts, conservative and libertarian parties are practically always on the defensive in democratic systems, especially when they plead for fewer state interventions. If they want to survive, they must ultimately turn into redistribution parties. Reason cannot prevail against morality if the majority decides. This is also the cause of the increasingly weaker intellectual capacities of the political class. Neither professional experience nor specialist knowledge is required if morality is the essential criterion. Moreover, no measurable results need to be achieved in the policies of democratic states in times of peace. 
the impression of decisive action is sufficient. Therefore, this profession attracts a disproportionate number of mediocre, but power-conscious or even psychopathic dazzlers. Elsewhere, for example, in business or science, their lack of skill would preclude any serious chance of them attaining power or influence. The most important characteristic, besides the elimination of intra-party competitors according to the traditional Machiavellian rules, is the ability to make even the worst shortcomings and mistakes appear to be carried by moral motives. Morality, in turn, is an arbitrary consensus that can be changed by those who arbitrate social ostracism or recognition, first and foremost, the mass media. Subsidies or special rights are granted to interest groups that rely on currently popular moral projects. In such a system, anyone who is incapable or unwilling to be productive seizes the opportunity to secure offices, money, and prestige by means of indignant and moralizing behavior. Peace of mind comes as an added bonus to the morally superior. How can one expect loudmouths and the less gifted not to seize this opportunity? Skillful politicians rule with them. If they want to remain in power, they must follow their often contradictory moral ideas and continue to push towards ever greater equality in the context of continuous competition for outcry and outrage. This narrows the range of what can be said and what is permissible up to the point where the rights of anyone who is ahead of anyone else in any way or simply has a competing viewpoint can be called into question. The end result is a Jacobinian dictatorship. And then the time is ripe again for yet another Napoleon. The weaknesses of democracy are therefore obvious, at least for those willing to take an honest look. What can be done about it? In Western countries, some opposition groups are now considering creating other incentives, such as introducing the criminal offense of wasting taxes or reducing pension claims by politicians who have caused considerable financial damage. In reality, such a thing would only be possible by referendum or after considerable media pressure. After all, those responsible cannot have any interest in weakening their own position. Moreover, it seems impossible in a mass democracy to agree not to grant special benefits. However, social orders that violate the principle of who pays decides for structural reasons have no lasting chance of survival. If the majority of non-payers or low-payers regularly decide what happens to the contributions of the high-payers, the latter will eventually turn their backs away from that order, either by leaving the geographical area of the system or by limiting their productivity. They are aware that their higher solvency proves that their previous decisions compared to those of non-payers or low-payers were apparently the better ones. So why should the latter be allowed to decide how funds are used? It is almost certain that they will make worse decisions for the community than if they were made by those who are capable of paying. The system gradually loses its top performers and eventually collapses due to economic problems. So can democracy still be saved at all? It is worth taking a look at the small principality of Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein is not a constitutional monarchy in the conventional sense. Rather, it is a unique mixture of direct democracy and parliamentary constitutional hereditary monarchy. 
The Constitution was largely amended in 2003. This originated from the recognition that the inherent tendency of every democracy towards party rule and self-serving interest of the political class must be restricted by bodies which have relevant rights of control and co-determination of their own and which are not subject to the influence of the parties. Since then, in Liechtenstein, these have been above all the people and the prince. Even the municipalities may introduce their own legislative initiatives. In order to counter the danger of unrestricted majority rule through direct democracy, the Liechtenstein system has installed two safety valves. On the one hand, the prince's right of veto against the results of referendums, and on the other, the right of each individual municipality to secede. Any abuse of the veto can subject the prince to a no-confidence vote or even the abolition of the monarchy altogether. In his work, the State in the Third Millennium, Prince Hans Adam II points out that such a system need not to be a monarchy. A president directly elected by the people could be in a position similar to that of the prince in Liechtenstein. In any case, the current national constitution of Liechtenstein is one of the most innovative with regard to the limitation of power and democracy, and that is the decisive point. Liechtenstein is indeed the only country in the world that allows its municipalities to secede, thus granting them self-determination by virtue of its constitution. Actually, this is an elementary democratic exercise. The majority of an area deciding by popular vote to become independent or to belong to another community. This right of peoples to self-determination is also embodied in the Charter of the United Nations. However, its application would be an enormous check on state power, so the Charter has concocted a special notion of the principle of territorial integrity, so as to disregard any real right of self-determination. If secessions down to the municipal level were also permitted elsewhere, even in principle, as is the case in Liechtenstein, the governments would have an incentive to pay more attention to the interests of the regions. Hans Adam II has recognized that the granting of self-determination, and thus the right to secession, can improve the quality of state action by means of competition in the same way as is the case in the product and service market. The states must then peacefully compete with each other in order to offer their customers the best possible service at the lowest price. Hans Adam II The process of transforming the state from a demigod to a service provider will only be possible if one moves from indirect to direct democracy and breaks the state monopoly by means of the right to self-determination at a municipal level. In Germany, given the same legal situation as in Liechtenstein, not only the Busingen exclave, but various other southern German municipalities would probably have long since joined Switzerland. This, in turn, would have made politicians considerably more cautious, facing the threat of further loss of national territory and citizens, and, hence, power. Another possibility for democratic reform would be to follow the tradition of the Greek city-states. See Chapter 9. In such a system, only those individuals who are self-sufficient and willing to defend the community would have the right to vote. They are the ones who literally have skin in the game. Alternatively, property rights could be linked 
to voting rights and direct democracy only be set up as a right of veto. See Chapter 11. However, all variants presuppose a decentralization of power and the manageability of local communities. That brings us to the next topic. Smallness and Subsidiarity In a society of small states, neither war nor crime disappear. They are merely reduced to acceptable sizes. Instead of hopelessly trying to inflate man's limited talents to a size that can cope with immense size, the immense size is to be reduced to a size that even man's limited talents can handle. In miniature, problems lose their horror and their significance. That is the maximum a society can strive for. Leopold Kor, Philosopher of Smallness the larger and more anonymous a society is, the more likely a bloated machinery of politicians, civil servants, and lobbyists will form around the center, and the more likely there is to be an incentive to exploit personally unknown fellow human beings and to make decisions unrelated to the real world. Genuine subsidiarity means that most decisions are taken at the local level. There, we know each other and can directly observe the impact of our actions. Social control is in place. For this reason, one of the greatest contributors to Switzerland's success is likely to be the self-determination of the municipalities with their far-reaching responsibilities. Together with the competing cantons, Switzerland's 26 states, they are pushing back centralist, comprehensive political visions. This self-determination at the local and regional level is probably one of the least recognized recipes for that country's success. The Swiss Adolf Gasser was aware of this shortly after the Second World War. He saw that centralism leads again and again into disaster and proposed giving all European communities a comprehensive right to regulate their own affairs in order to reorganize the continent. He writes, only in a clear, lifelike community can the average citizen acquire what is called a political sense of proportion, a sense of human scale. Only here he learns in daily conversation to some extent to understand and take into account the legitimate concerns of his differently-minded and differently-interested neighbors. Only here, on the basis of freedom, does that minimum of community develop which can effectively curb the tendency to authoritarianism and anarchy. In this sense, autonomous small spaces are and remain irreplaceable citizen schools, without which the liberal democratic state would have to wither in its roots. Such ideas have not, of course, found and still do not find any resonance in big government. This is not surprising because it is in line with the incentive structure. Imagine you were a politician and had to choose between. System A, a large, powerful entity with a huge budget whose leaders are known and respected worldwide. Even subordinate positions have considerable power, influence, and recognition. You, as a politician, have a chance to be part of it one day. System B, a patchwork of small and medium-sized units. At best, a few of the leading regents are known beyond the region where they live. Connected in a kind of federation of states, 
governed by a rotating president who has only limited competences. Overall, there are only a few highly paid and influential positions in government. The choice of politicians and the opinion makers supporting them will always fall on System A for selfish reasons. High-minded reasons can quickly be found, however, because great tasks lie ahead of us. The future must be shaped. Only large units are able to cope with the challenges of our time. The only way we can economically stand up to XYZ, etc. This is why most senior government officials in Switzerland, contrary to the majority of the population, are presumably in favor of joining the EU. There is a whole universe of new, well-paid and interesting posts far away from the control of the citizen. In the real world, however, small countries such as Singapore, Iceland, and Liechtenstein have managed not only to live in peace, but also to achieve much higher per capita incomes than the large states. This comes with stable public finances and low crime. Another aspect should give us food for thought. There are only a handful of companies worldwide that have more than one million employees, and only one that has more than two million, Walmart. Since these are the results of an unplanned and, so to speak, natural development, there are some indications that economies of scale automatically turn into disadvantages when they reach a certain size. This observation also contradicts the thesis that a free market would eventually become dominated by one large company due to an inherent tendency towards monopolization. At some point, large structures, even monopolies, are no longer controllable and profits are worn away in the organizational gears. Countries, despite all their differences compared to profit-oriented companies, are large organizations with a kind of business operation too. So this observation should also apply to them in principle. The division of the Roman Empire in late antiquity and the more modern principle of subsidiarity, according to which the subordinate units should decide for themselves what they can manage, are probably derived from this insight, as is the regular division of Mennonite settlements after reaching a size of more than 150 inhabitants. The main advantages of large states can still be taken by autonomous communities. They may form federations of states for a common defense, legal jurisdiction, or customs territory. And not every unit must be a completely independent state. Even sovereign small states can join larger communities in certain fields. Monaco has a customs union with France and Liechtenstein is a member of the European Economic Area. Small statehood does not automatically mean isolation or provincial thinking, but it does mean self-government and subsidiarity. And that opens up possibilities that are missing elsewhere. Around the year 1400, China had the best, largest, and most seaworthy ships in the world. Huge fleets sailed to Indonesia, India, Arabia, and as far as the east coast of Africa. The Chinese were about to circumnavigate the Cape of Good Hope, travel up the west coast of Africa, and finally discover the sea route to Europe. Then something serious happened. The Chinese emperor, who came to power in 1432, saw seafaring as a waste of money. He banned the production of seaworthy ships 
and gave the order to demolish the corresponding shipyards. Even the records of earlier overseas expeditions were destroyed. China's maritime tradition was lost due to the decision of one individual, and it remained so. In contrast, at that time Europe was divided into about 2,000 dominions. Thus, from 1484 onwards, the Genoese Columbus canvassed one European dynasty after another to obtain the fleet with which he was to be the first to sail across the Atlantic. He tried it in Italy, France, Portugal, and Spain, and it was not until the second attempt in 1492 that the Spanish royal house agreed and equipped him with three small ships. There was simply never a situation where one fool ruled the whole of Europe and was able to abolish an entire technology. We should therefore consider whether a world of a thousand Liechtensteins would not be a better world. Most decisions would be taken at a local and decentralized level. Seriously poor decisions would have limited effects. There would be numerous examples of what works and what does not. The multitude of communities alone would lead to fruitful competition for customers instead of a state cartel that wants to milk citizens as far as possible on the one hand and exclude them from all decisions on the other. It is precisely its diversity and the associated competition that have been Europe's recipe for success. That doesn't have to mean weakness. Even city-states such as Venice and Genoa are more marginal states in size such as Portugal and the Netherlands were able to develop great political and economic power in their heydays. The creation of overarching institutions, such as a common free trade or economic zone or a common defense alliance, is always possible and particularly obvious for communities of a similar nature. One thinks, for example, of the Hanseatic League of Cities or the Deutscher Bund, German Union, an alliance of 39 sovereign states that maintained joint political and military institutions. The smaller the states are, the less a single or a group of states threatens to become too dominant. Small states do not wage world wars. Only great powers cause great disasters. Compared to Germany, Liechtenstein, for example, is a prime example of system robustness or anti-fragility. An anti-fragile system is one that has fewer extreme ups and downs but is stable and ultimately more successful over a much longer period. Fragile systems, on the other hand, look good for a while, but then collapse catastrophically at regular intervals. Until 1866, Liechtenstein and present-day Germany were united in the aforementioned Deutscher Bund. Just as the intellectual mainstream is currently striving for a single European federal state, in 1866, the creation of a single federal German state looked like the measure of all things. When it became clear after the Battle of Konigratz that Prussia, which rejected the continued existence of the Deutscher Bund, would be the center of this new state, the member states decided to abolish it. Only one member voted against at the time. Liechtenstein. What subsequently happened to Germany is well known. Wars of unification, colonialism, World War I, two million war dead, loss of a quarter of the national territory, revolution, hyperinflation, currency reform with loss of almost all savings, 
National Socialist Dictatorship, World War II, the Holocaust with the loss of the Jewish citizenry and their culture, six and a half million more war dead, the loss of another third of the national territory, bombed-out cities, the expulsion of 12 million Germans from the lost territory, the division of the country into occupation zones, renewed currency reform with another loss of almost all personal savings, socialist dictatorship in the eastern part, including revolution and renewed currency reform there. All in all, Germany has experienced four systemic collapses since 1870. Liechtenstein, zero. Today, the Principality of Liechtenstein has a much higher per capita income than the Federal Republic of Germany and is a stable country without significant crime and without national debt. All this was achieved without a single war, without a single revolution, and without a single merger with a large and powerful state. Competition if you don't want to understand that the best already choose their countries like they do with good employers, life will punish you. Gunnar Heinsen, Economist and Sociologist More smallness and diversity mean more competition, even if only a few new systems emerge between the established large states. That alone has a limiting effect on power. Here is an example of how control through competition can work at the state level. The Principality of Monaco is a constitutional monarchy which does not provide any participation rights for non-citizens, which represent 80% of the population. Nevertheless, there are more interested parties than the small housing market can accommodate, which is why new territory is being claimed from the sea. Why? Monaco offers security from crime, extensive tax exemption, manageable rules, and a good climate. In short, Monaco is attractive and leaves its inhabitants alone. On the day all EU regulations, including income taxes, are introduced in Monaco, the Monaco business model is over. Most people would just move away. The prince knows this, and that's why it won't happen. Despite his formally extensive power, it is competition with other places that guarantees the inhabitants their freedom, not a parliament, nor a constitution, nor the right to referendums. The smaller the states, the easier it is to change the system. A social order that can only be escaped after thousands of miles is clearly different from a state that can be left behind after just 50 kilometers. In the first case, you have to start a new life, if necessary, even change continents and learn a new language. Few of your friends and family will be with you. However, if you have an alternative within a half-day trip, you will have to accept far fewer lifestyle changes. There will be a greater willingness to change to another system. For states, the competitive pressure to deliver good performance would increase. A world of hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of states or societies of various kinds would give every person a wide range of choices to shape their life according to their preferences and inclinations. Conversely, further centralization towards world government would mean that the choices for individuals would drop to zero. There would be a monopoly of the most powerful state possible, the Leviathan in perfection. 
it would exercise a total monopoly of force and regulation over the entire world population. The much-praised One World or New World Order under a unified world government would therefore mean no one who has uncovered a government scandal can escape to another country anymore, nor could someone who does not want to pay the exorbitant taxes demanded or does not want to follow the rules of conduct of those in power. It is very likely that a world government would use its monopoly of force against the will of those affected and eventually abuse it. For neither the separation of powers, the rule of law, human rights, nor democracy have proven to be effective means of limiting power in the long run. Competition is humanity's only known, permanently effective means of disempowerment. 3. How Does Prosperity Arise? Over the past 50 years, more than $2 trillion in aid has gone from the rich to the poor countries. But nowhere in the world has this model brought economic growth. But we know how to do it. We have seen what concepts have reduced poverty in China, India, South Africa, and Botswana. These countries have relied on the market as an engine for economic growth. The approach of Western development aid, based on pity and charity, has failed. Dambisa Moyo, Zambian Economist Voluntary Cooperation One of the basic prerequisites for creating prosperity is the possibility of voluntary cooperation. It only comes about if all cooperation partners expect something from it. Without self-interest, there will be no cooperation. But self-interest alone does not lead to cooperation, because all cooperation is based on reciprocation and exchange. Something must be given in order to receive something. That is the principle of dua dei, I give, so you give. The voluntary nature of cooperation ensures that each service is met by reciprocal action, and it also ensures that service and reciprocation correspond to the wishes of the exchange partners. Whoever wants to exchange selfishly must pay attention to what others want, and he must adjust what he has to offer to those wants. Otherwise, he will not find an exchange partner. It therefore depends solely on the subjective assessment of those affected, not on the supposed objective equivalence of the goods exchanged. Voluntary exchange is therefore not a zero-sum game, for the gain of one is not the loss of the other. What makes voluntary exchange unique is rather that it enriches all those involved in it according to their own ideas. Otherwise, there would be no exchange. Anyone who exchanges a coin for a loaf of bread at the bakery in the morning would rather have bread than money at that moment. The baker, on the other hand, prefers the money. This principle, by the way, remains the same whether it is used in primitive natural exchange or in a modern economy based on the division of labor. It applies irrespective of whether goods, money, or work performance are the subject of the exchange. But can one also speak of voluntary cooperation when one of the exchange partners is in dire need and the other is not? That is certainly the case. To be free is not to be healthy, wealthy, or happy. To be free means not to be subject to the will of third parties in one's actions. 
nor does an economic emergency constitute a restriction of freedom unless it is due to the use of force. Whoever sells his property or his labor at very low prices out of sheer necessity, that is, without violence or threats from third parties, shows quite clearly that he also prefers cooperation to non-cooperation in times of need. He considers starvation wages better than no wages, small sales proceeds to no proceeds. Why should someone be considered a culprit by offering the desired or even urgently sought cooperation? We can all always feel equally called to charitable help, but why should those who offer themselves to the person seeking help as cooperation partners have a greater duty to help than we do? It takes a certain double standard to accuse an entrepreneur who pays low wages in poor countries of selfish greed for profit and at the same time not to donate up to the pain threshold to a fund set up for those wage earners. Anyone who thinks it is asking too much to alleviate the plight of completely unknown people by donating up to the threshold of pain must accept the same consideration for those who play the economically stronger part in emergency bartering. Property Give a man the secure possession of a bleak rock, and he will turn it into a garden. Give him a nine-year's lease of a garden, and he will convert it into a desert. The magic of property turns sand into gold. Arthur Young, Agriculturist the admission of private property, also in means of production, has proved indispensable for the maintenance of a peaceful and prosperous society. Wherever there is no private property, or where it is difficult or even impossible to acquire it, general prosperity is not possible. Why is that so? Private property is the sole countervailing power of the individual against the power of the state. It is the basis for all individual nonviolent activity. The associated responsibility helps to develop one's own personality, to secure one's own existence and independence, as well as to build up and maintain the family. The refinement and expansion of property makes us proud and satisfied. Finally, property promotes the free expression of independent opinions or the support of political goals because one is not dependent on state or other third-party support. Moreover, only property enables an economic order based on voluntary cooperation and the corresponding exchange, a market economy. The institution of private property guarantees that many independent decisions about the offering of goods and services and corresponding expenses can be made by the respective owners. These decisions by a large number of actors will be very good to a small extent, mediocre to a large extent, and fundamentally wrong to some extent, with the respective consequences for those affected. Thus, the best decisions will be copied and those who repeatedly make wrong decisions will lose their property in favor of those who are better decision makers. Since you are liable for the consequences of your actions with your property, there is an incentive to make careful decisions. Over time, the quality of these decisions will improve for the benefit of society as a whole. If, on the other hand, only one central body had ownership rights, then their wrong decisions would have devastating consequences for everyone. This is connected with the right to inheritance. If inheritance is prevented, 
the private owner will tend to eat up his capital rather than see it transferred to the state. This applies in particular to family businesses, which are often characterized by a pronounced work and responsibility ethic and whose full expansion usually takes several generations. However, the right to acquire property is largely meaningless if its realization is linked to countless bureaucratic hurdles that only a small percentage of the population can overcome. This is one of the main institutional obstacles in many developing countries. Property rights are also devalued if the power of disposition is restricted by law or high taxation to such an extent that the property can no longer be used freely. These restrictions usually result from the unspoken collectivist view that the property of the individual is actually the property of the community and that it was left to the individual only for reasons of practicality. However, such limited private property is largely devalued and thus also loses its peacemaking and prosperity-promoting functions. Suppose you are the owner of a house you live in yourself. The mortgage has been paid and it belongs to you alone. However, you may not modify this house at your own discretion, but must take numerous building specifications into account even inside the building. Nor may you decide for yourself which energy supply you prefer, as the government has very specific ideas on this point. Also, you may not sell your house to a third party before a certain time has elapsed without special taxes being due. If you sell it, the local municipality has a right of first refusal. You must also pay taxes to the state for the mere fact that you own the house. The state also has the option of registering a compulsory mortgage on your property in order to achieve certain objectives, common burden sharing, inflation adjustment. If you do not pay any other taxes which the state demands, then your house will be seized and auctioned off. If you want to pass it on to your children, the inheritance taxes are so high that your children will probably be forced to sell the house. Does your house really belong to you? Price as a central control variable. It doesn't cost anything. It's paid for by the state. Francois Holland, Socialist President. Not everyone will always find the desired exchange partner at the desired conditions. Measured against the available wishes, all goods are scarce. As long as there are still unfulfilled wishes somewhere in the world, we will not run out of work. That is why people have to decide which good is more important to them in each case, considering their exchange or purchasing power. They can make this decision in a free market economy on the basis of prices that are formed in the market. This requires private ownership of goods because only in this way can prices result from the sum of different interests, which in each case reflect real scarcity situations and preferences. Without market prices, however, no entrepreneur can minimize costs and calculate profits. This is also the reason why planned economies in general and communism slash socialism in particular always fail. The Planned Economy Association of All Means of Production in State Hands eliminates free price formation, which represents an indispensable information system about the relative scarcity of given resources. The same applies when setting maximum or minimum prices. 
Prices formed in the market reflect scarcity and make it possible to determine economical and less economical use of resources. A controlled economy with its arbitrarily fixed prices is systematically in the dark. It cannot, therefore, avoid the constant misallocation and waste of resources. Since this would apply even if all the actors in socialism were diligent and skillful idealists, its way of doing business is doomed to failure. Socialism and communism, therefore, do not fail because of the difficult practical feasibility of a concept that is right in itself or because of people's selfishness. They are already misconstructions at the theoretical level. They do not have a suitable indicator of scarcity. The massive setting of false incentives by punishing business success and rewarding the incompetent and inefficient, as long as the attitude is right, only accelerate the unavoidable failure. Unfortunately, the minimum principle ensures the unbroken popularity of socialist ideas. In Venezuela, the 84th experiment since 1917 to put socialism into practice has just failed. The 85th attempt is therefore only a matter of time. It would be desirable if this time it was limited to volunteers or if those who did not wish to participate had an alternative. Raising the Living Standard In the belief that economists have the knowledge and the power to shape the processes in society at our own discretion, a knowledge that we do not actually possess, we will only cause harm. Friedrich August von Hayek, Economist and Philosopher If socialism does not work, how can the individual, especially the poor and uneducated, raise his material standard of living? Here, too, the answer is, through voluntary cooperation. This works as follows. 1. Whoever wants to make a living for himself must produce and offer goods or services for which others are willing to pay voluntarily. This includes one's own labor. 2. Whoever wants to increase his standard of living beyond that must either work more or more productively or save a part of his income or borrow money. Then he can invest this capital in machines, in his own training, or in other companies so that new products and services can be offered, which in turn are in demand by others. 3. That's all. All other ways of raising one's material standard of living, apart from begging or gambling, require coercion from third parties and are at their expense. They are therefore zero-sum games and often even destroy value. The latter particularly applies to ideas such as the management of the money supply, interest rate manipulation, debt-based demand growth, interventionism, or redistribution. None of this can create original value. This does not mean that these methods have no effect and may not be necessary for reasons of maintaining political power. But by intervening in the price mechanism and the principle of voluntary cooperation, they ultimately destroy more prosperity than they create. State intervention in markets is always linked to coercion. It is based on decisions whose economic consequences the decision-makers do not have to bear, and justified by claiming knowledge the superiority of which they cannot prove. Moreover, such interventions influence people's incentives in such a way that undesirable and unforeseen side effects occur almost without exception.
Let us take as an example the downward manipulation of interest rates by the central banks. The aim is to encourage companies to borrow at favorable interest rates, buy capital goods, produce more, and employ more people, which in turn increases the demand for other goods, etc. This may work for a while, but the low interest rates tempt companies into investing in areas that are in fact unprofitable. Companies which would otherwise go bankrupt can be kept alive by cheap loans. This wastes resources that are lacking where there is real demand. If interest rates rise again later, the end comes in the form of numerous bankruptcies, many more than would be the case without interest rate interventions. Another side effect is that pension-safe investments, such as government bonds and life insurance policies, suddenly have lower yields and the pension security of many people is endangered. Because of the cheap loans, anyone who can offer securities invests in real estate, which greatly increases housing prices. As a result, young people and middle-income earners in particular can no longer afford to buy their own homes. Low-income earners can no longer pay the constantly rising rents. The bottom line here is that much more is being destroyed than good is being done. And this is just one example among countless other well-intentioned state interventions. The hallmark of a free market, on the other hand, is that every actor can pursue his own interest in freedom and personal responsibility, but is also responsible for the consequences, such as his failure. Market developments are not predictable in this way, but by constant trial and error, selection and imitation, they promote the prosperity of all. The Requirement of Profit The market economy is a democracy in which every penny gives a vote. The wealth of successful business people is the result of a consumer plebiscite. Ludwig von Mises, Economist and Philosopher the voluntary exchange of goods and services enriches everyone involved, otherwise it would not take place. It is thanks to exchange that the division of labor, which increases prosperity, has continued to expand, especially to the benefit of the poorest. If we now banish the profit motive from this process, we would turn off the engine of progress that helps reduce hunger, disease, and infant mortality all over the world. Why would anyone become a baker or a doctor? At least in part because he believes that he is earning a living through these activities. But he can only do that if he turns a profit. Blaming bakers or doctors for making a profit from our hunger and our diseases means asking to be served free of charge by others or asking cooperation partners to reject the services offered to them in exchange so that no evil profit is made. But even craftsmen, the self-employed, and companies are social per se, since they provide society with goods and services that would otherwise not exist. In the long run, they can only do this if they make a profit. This profit requirement, in turn, ensures that the funds are used optimally and that the resources are used in the best possible way. In this way, companies create something that did not exist before, namely products, services, jobs, and thus raise the standard of living all over the world. The entrepreneur's profit indicates that he has successfully transformed socially lower-valued goods into socially higher-valued goods and thereby increased and improved the social well-being overall. 
The well-intentioned but completely ill-considered moral campaign against profits would thus, if successful, prevent new cooperation and let ongoing cooperation die off, reduce the division of labor, and bring about a gradual return to subsistence levels. It follows logically. Because nonviolent profit-making promotes cooperation, division of labor and prosperity, it is a net positive. Economic action without profit-seeking, on the other hand, is necessarily inefficient. Because only the generation of profits indicates whether the overall limited resources are being wasted or used in such a way that the most urgent needs are always being met. This is generally the problem of state-run businesses, whether in education, health, or culture. The lack of profit, seen by many as a moral seal of quality, is regularly offset by the inefficient use of resources. Anyone who does not strive for profit lacks the most important criterion for how and in what way he should use his means, where he should stint, and where he should slog. Entrepreneurs Some people regard private enterprise as a predatory tiger to be shot. Others look on it as a cow they can milk. Not enough people see it as a healthy horse pulling a sturdy wagon. Winston Churchill, writer and politician. Entrepreneurs and innovators are those who play a central role in a society based on the division of labor, even if they are always a minority. The invention and exploitation of the wheel, the art of printing and electricity were achievements of an infinitesimally small number of people, but they have significantly increased the well-being of all. Successful entrepreneurs, from craftsmen to large producers, are characterized by the fact that they offer something that customers want. Only those who think about what their fellow human beings need, wish for, or need in the future for their happiness and well-being will be successful on the free market. Because unlike the state, no entrepreneur has the power to force people to buy certain products or services. He must win over customers through quality and price. In reality, the freedom to do business is severely restricted in most countries, whether through labor laws, import and export duties, restrictions on contractual freedom through minimum wages, anti-discrimination laws, and so on. Interest and money supply are manipulated. As a result, resources are misallocated. The societies in question are less prosperous than they could be. All policymakers pride themselves on helping the weak, but do everything they can to make it more difficult for the weak to take up a commercial or self-employed activity by means of regulation. It is therefore a question of creating the conditions to facilitate voluntary cooperation and thus the generation of wealth at the personal level and also to provide a playing field to the few top talents who create new things. These include the right to choose one's activity, training, and job freely, to keep the fruits of one's labor, to own private property including any means of production, to offer products and services of all kinds, and to set the prices for them. In addition, there should be comprehensive contractual freedom, that is, the right to freely negotiate contracts with anyone on practically any subject matter. Finally, this includes the establishment of a legal system that regulates conflicts of interest and helps individuals to enforce their justified claims in a predetermined procedure if necessary. 
However, entrepreneurial freedom also means liability. The right to make profits includes the obligation to pay for losses. Failed companies must be able to go bankrupt and be liquidated. If, in such cases, the state steps in, ultimately, of course, the taxpayer, not only are disastrous false incentives set, but bad companies are also kept alive at the expense of better competitors. The beneficial selection effect of the free market cannot unfold. If, however, the state does not intervene in this way, the resources of capital and labor will gradually flow into those areas in which profitable value creation can be achieved. This results in general growth and an increase in living standards. Contrary to popular belief, it is not companies or wealthy entrepreneurs who secretly dominate the course of the world and politics. The influence of the economy on politics is rather a reaction to the fact that their interests cannot be perceived otherwise. In case of doubt, economic power hides behind political power, because politicians can have people arrested and imprisoned at any time. Entrepreneurs cannot do the same. Especially in Russia and China, many influential oligarchs had to learn this lesson the hard way. Western governments also have no problem with imposing substantial fines on large corporations or destroying them through political measures, such as the tobacco and coal industries. Given this imbalance, it is not surprising that companies try to influence politics in their favor in many different ways. It is also in line with the minimum principle that they often use their political influence to harm competitors. The world is not dominated by wealthy entrepreneurs. If they wanted real power, they would go into politics instead. 4. Which role does religion play? If something that some people find pointless, such as religion, has existed for a very, very long time, then we must assume that it still has a long way to go and will certainly survive those who demand its abolition. Nassim Nicholas Taleb financial mathematician and philosopher. Which position religion occupies or may occupy in a society is a question that both existing and new social orders must answer in a binding manner. Otherwise, conflicts are unavoidable. It is not easy to define religion, especially in contrast to other ideologies. Religion is understood here as a worldview whose basis is belief in certain supernatural forces which influence the life of man and which also satisfies the need to explain meaning, moral orientation, the world in general. Looking back at human history, it becomes clear that the demand for such ideas is enormous. For this reason, it is to be expected that religions oriented towards gods or secular substitute religions will continue to have a considerable influence well into the future. However, the relationship of a social order to religion is also a question of power that every society has to face. Let us imagine that a previously unknown introductory chapter was discovered from Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, assuming there's no doubt about the authenticity. In this chapter, Hitler describes how the Archangel Gabriel gave him everything that is written down in the book and forms the basis of his ideology. This was God's immediate command. Would National Socialism now suddenly be a religion? And could it invoke religious freedom to practice its teaching? 
To anticipate the outcome, religion is not a problem for a society if it merely presents itself as a spiritual private matter that gives the individual strength and meaning to his life. Insofar as it teaches virtues such as honesty, tolerance, and integrity, it can even be a means of cohesion for a trusting and peaceful coexistence in large groups. In this respect, there is no need to regulate who believes in what or not. A free society does not interfere in private convictions. But as soon as a religion demands privileges for its members or the observance of certain rules by non-believers, it becomes, in addition, a political ideology. That is where the problems begin. Because then there are two systems of regulation, namely the religious and the secular. If these are not absolutely congruent, the question arises as to which rules will ultimately prevail. It is not possible to belong to two conflicting systems simultaneously for a long time. One will always prevail, and that is usually the more violent one, not the morally or intellectually more appealing. If mutually exclusive convictions meet, there can be no compromise. A woman has equal rights to a man or not. The rights of followers of different faiths are equal or not. Religion is a private matter or not. Criticism of gods or prophets is allowed or not. In this respect, the history of Europe in recent centuries has been marked by the perpetual struggle for the suppression of the collective regulatory claim of religion in favor of the rights of the individual guaranteed by the state. Ultimately, even the U.S. forced the Mormons by military means to separate state and church. It is therefore no surprise that nowadays Islam in particular is spreading from the private sphere of religion to public life. For Islam sees itself not only as a religion, but also as a complete system of legal and political values that provides for a comprehensive regulation of everyday life. Therefore, we cannot avoid taking a closer look at this order. There is no provision at all for the separation of religion and society in Islam. Sunnah and the Quran form the basis of the Islamic faith, Islamic law, and Islamic way of life. Therefore, Islam is faith, ethics, social order, and way of life at the same time. The totality of all rules from the Quran and the Sunnah, the latter are the sayings and actions of the Prophet, is called Sharia. A large part of these rules deals with relations between Muslims and non-Muslims, most of whom are explicitly dismissed. The Quran, on the other hand, is the unaltered word of Allah for Muslims. Its statements are therefore directly binding and have legal force within the framework of Sharia law. Problems arise from this, namely when the rules of the Sharia come up against contradictory state rules, for example with regard to the prohibition of violence against dissenters, the freedom of expression and art, equal rights for women, the freedom of religion, especially atheism, sexual self-determination, especially homosexuality, the freedom of marriage, the prohibition of degrading punishments, the equal treatment of different beliefs, the freedom to change religion, especially apostasy from Islam, what applies now? If Sharia makes deviating regulations here, 
which also proceed on the basis of the so-called abrogation of more moderate Quranic passages, for example, with regard to the position of women, critics of Islam, Jews and Christians, marriages, punishments, apostasy, why should these not apply? Why does the commandment not to eat pork apply, but not the commandments not to take Jews and Christians as friends? Shura 5, verse 51, and 3, 118. To chop off thieves' hands, 5, 38, or to forcefully fight unbelievers, 9, 123, 9, 111, 2, 191, 4, 89, 47, 4. How can you be a Muslim and refuse to accept these rules? Believers also need consistency. Either the Quran is the direct word of Allah, or it is not. If it is, then all commandments are binding and not just an arbitrary selection of them. This is also the weakness of the moderate tendencies in Islam. They simply ignore certain specifications, but have no consistent way of thinking about how this should all fit together. That is why the supposedly radical movements of Islam are so popular. They are coherent in themselves, correspond directly to written tradition, and also reflect the life of the Prophet, who had numerous critics and people who refused to convert killed. This is by no means only a theological problem. Of the 57 member states of the Organization of the Islamic Conference, 45 have signed the so-called Cairo Declaration of Human Rights in Islam of 1990. Among other things, it states, Article 1A. All humans form a family whose members are united by submission to Allah and who are all descended from Adam. Article 2A. It is forbidden to take someone else's life unless Sharia law requires it. Article 2D. The right to physical integrity is guaranteed. This does not apply if there is a reason prescribed by Sharia law. Article 24. All rights and freedoms mentioned in this declaration are subject to Islamic Sharia law. Article 25. The Islamic Sharia is the sole authoritative source for the interpretation or explanation of each individual article of this declaration. Consequently, all human rights, including the right to life and physical integrity, are subject to Sharia law, and this applies universally. This means nothing other than that divine law takes precedence over human rights. Critics of Islam, therefore, have no right to bodily integrity, since Sharia provides otherwise. Read Article 2D above next to Shura 5, verse 33. Whoever takes action against Islam should lose his hands and feet. Any social order that propagates the inalienable rights of individuals, regardless of their religious convictions, is thus in conflict with Islam. It is the old conflict between rational man-made rules and supposedly divine law. This conflict can be denied, ignored, euphemized, but it cannot be resolved by doing so. A fight for supremacy is inevitable. The weaker one will finally be forced to adapt. This process is already in full swing. Here are three examples. 1. My wife grew up in the suburbs of Paris as a child of Senegalese immigrants. Some acquaintances and relatives still live there. They report that in the districts where they used to wear shorts as young women, 
Muslim young men are now patrolling, enforcing dress codes under the threat of violence, and completely denying women access to certain cafes and restaurants. Other acquaintances of hers who were regular partygoers and free spirits at the time now strictly follow the religious rules, look down on unbelievers and those Muslims who do not follow the religious rules. 2. In the Berlin of 2017, reformer Seyran Etiz opened a liberal mosque in which men and women pray together and women do not have to wear headscarves. She has received more than a hundred death threats from her fellow believers within a short time and can only be seen in public under police protection. Quite a few Muslims have told her that they supported her ideas but feared visiting the liberal mosque. 3. In Algeria, German journalist Schermbeck has seen a secular society oriented towards the West transform into a restrictive Islamic society within a few years although many people there, perhaps even the majority, did not want it. A radical minority has pushed through its ideology and imposed Islam on the public sphere. People have fallen over like dominoes during this attack. Accepting the rules of the Sharia as binding, they no longer drink alcohol in public, do not play forbidden games, follow religious food rules and rituals, divide people into pure and impure the women cover themselves, etc. Moreover, once the masses have subjected themselves to the rules of the radicals, they are now exerting collective pressure on those who have not yet fallen over. Summary quote by Michael Klonowski on Schermbeck, 2016. According to a survey conducted in 2013, the following agreement was reached in Islamic countries on the question of whether Sharia law should become the official national law. Tunisia, 56%, Jordan, 71%, Egypt, 74%, Morocco, 83%, Pakistan, 84%, Palestine, 89%, Iraq, 91%, Afghanistan, 99%. This raises the question for every secular society about how to deal with Muslim immigrants, especially from these countries. In principle, there are only three possibilities. One, Denial of the problem. Religiousness does not matter. Islam is a religion like any other. Western European solution. 2. Complete rejection. We refuse to turn our country into a multicultural society of incompatible communities. Eastern European solution. 3. Selection. Secular Muslims who explicitly recognize the primacy of worldly rules are welcome, the others are not. Compromise Solution Literally every non-Muslim society in the world must choose a variant, considering the respective advantages and disadvantages and accepting the consequences. The third variant is supported by the fact that one becomes a Muslim by birth even against one's own will, and many Muslims actually regard religion only as a private matter. And there are some subgroups that represent enlightened interpretations of Islam. However, the observation that secular Muslims have also returned to Sharia rule following life crises or due to group pressure, and that the successful integration of Muslims into non-Muslim societies is obviously a worldwide problem, speaks against this. 
A lasting solution can only be to institutionalize a reformed Islam, as some courageous, enlightened Muslims are already trying to do, sometimes at the risk of their own lives. This means accepting the separation of religion and politics and privatizing faith. This includes the recognition of the primacy of secular laws, legal equality between men and women, the right to sexual self-determination, even in the case of homosexuality, and the right to leave religion at any time without fear of any sanctions. Furthermore, this includes the renunciation of the use of force to enforce religious goals, the final and not only temporary abolition of slavery, the repeal of the numerous calls for killing in the Quran, the legal equality of dissenting believers, the renunciation of Islam's doctrine of domination, and the admission of criticism of faith and the prophet, to name only the most important points. As long as this has not happened, the Islam problem will remain. It will continue to occupy the world's attention for decades to come. What rights do we now generally concede to religions in a free secular society? In short, no religion should enjoy privileges that do not benefit all other citizens. This means that all laws also apply to religious citizens without restriction. Freedom of religion can only exist as freedom of confession, not as a privilege. This means, for example, that female and male genital mutilation of minors is a punishable offense. Consent is not possible because minors cannot yet legally consent. There can be no difference as to the motives for this assault. It is also irrelevant that most of the time the victims are the offender's own children. Otherwise, all other bodily harm or even homicides against one's own children would also have to be permitted. The same applies to cruelty to animals. If a society has decided to stop cruelty to animals, that is, the unnecessary suffering of animals without good reason, then this must also apply to religious citizens. This concerns, for example, the practice called shafting, that is, the slow bleeding to death of a not anesthetized animal, because an ancient holy book requires it. And it is not the case that these problems are insurmountable. With a little goodwill, there are possibilities of killing animals according to religious rituals, even in compliance with animal protection laws. And it is easily conceivable that the decision on genital mutilation will be left to those affected once they have reached the age of majority. Religious freedom, on the other hand, which grants privileges to religious members, is counterproductive. It is not a right of freedom, but an unequal treatment for the benefit of those who invoke a religion and at the expense of those who do not. In reality, it is all about power and appeasement, not justice. If a society has rules, they must apply to everyone. Equality before the law is the peacemaking principle of the rule of law. All violations of this principle ultimately lead to discord and social disharmony. Especially in a system based on reciprocity and the golden rule, there can be no place for religious privileges. The same applies to criticism of religions or their gods. There can be no right in a free society to be exempt from ridicule or criticism. If religious people do not want to accept this, they should organize themselves in their own societies. Why should people who have fundamentally different views on living together live together at all? 
This can only cause conflicts. 5. Do borders make sense? We lost control of our borders last year. Now we are beginning to lose control of our streets and squares. Marcus Soder, Bavarian Minister, 2016 Another decisive question for all social systems is that of border security and immigration control. But do we need borders at all? Wouldn't it be great and deeply humane if everyone could settle where they wanted? On the other hand, would it also be great and deeply humane if everyone could build their house where they wanted, regardless of who owns the land? The landowner, at the very least, will see this differently. But not only real estate, but also successful and stable societies are a scarce good. As such, of course, they have a price. This consists, for example, of asking about certain immigration requirements. According to one view, complete freedom of establishment everywhere, and thus the opening of all borders, would result in a doubling of the global gross national product, comparable to the positive effects of free trade, and should be supported for this reason alone. That is the theory. In practice, however, the exact opposite would happen, because several factors and incentives are left out of this consideration. Let's look at this in detail. Guaranteeing Security Secure borders are a guarantee for the internal and external security of a society. Because the easiest way to raise your standard of living is, and remains, taking something away from others. That is why rich countries with open borders will always attract crowds of people who have no respectable intentions. According to estimates by the German police, thousands of members of Georgian burglary gangs came to Germany in the course of the opening of the border in 2015 in order to file applications for asylum. Georgia is considered a safe country of origin, so they knew they had no chance of being accepted as refugees, and to commit commercial burglaries until their applications were finally rejected. With open borders, the possibility of deporting immigrant criminals is also ruled out. Because borders remain open, they can simply come back at any time. The state can no longer fulfill its only legitimate task, namely to protect the life, liberty, and property of its citizens. The case of a multiple rapist in Germany can serve as an example. He had already been deported four times, but repeatedly re-entered the country and committed new crimes. The security situation in such a system must continue to deteriorate over time. The crime rate is rising, and what has happened in Sweden and Germany provide impressive proof of this. Germany fully opened its borders in 2015, but in return had to fence in the famous Oktoberfest in 2016 for the first time in its 350-year history and carry out identity checks on entry. Since then, Christmas markets, carnival parades, and major events have had to be secured by heavily armed police, with roadblocks and strict admission controls. Violent crimes of hitherto unknown brutality, rape of children and old women, stabbings, mass brawls with iron bars, attacks on police officers, Jews, tram conductors, rescue and hospital personnel have become a part of everyday life. Even if the probability of being affected personally may still be low, at least for the time being, people have lost the sense that they can move safely in public spaces. 
and that is a massive competitive disadvantage for any society. The result is that those who can afford to do so migrate to systems that offer greater security. This process has already begun in Germany and elsewhere. You can either have a fence around your house, around your residential area, or around your country. There are no other alternatives, but the further away the fence is, the better the quality of life. Preventing Hostile Takeovers Borders are also about fending off hostile takeovers. They mean limiting other regimes. In part, borders between worldviews that are mutually exclusive are secured by massive military means. For example, the border between West Germany and East Germany during the Cold War of 1948 to 1989. Unsecured borders, on the other hand, offer the possibility of land seizure without the need for military means. If Australia, rich in natural resources, 24 million inhabitants, decided to pursue a policy of open borders, China, for example, might consider simply relocating 30 million merited party members there to bring Australia under its own influence. Nor does it require much imagination what would happen to Israel if it had a policy of open borders. In Europe, too, the intention of land seizure has been openly expressed by Islamists for years. Europeans believe that Muslims only came to Europe to earn money, but Allah has another plan. Nekmetin Erbakan, Turkish Prime Minister, 2001 In the year 2100, there will be 35 million Turks in Germany. The population of the Germans will then be around 20 million. With our strong men and healthy women, we will conclude what Sultan Suleiman began with the siege of Vienna in 1529. Viral Oger, German-Turkish entrepreneur, 2004. By 2050, Britain will have a Muslim majority. This will mean the end of freedom and democracy and, instead, submission to Allah. Anjum Shudaray, British Islam activist, 2016. In this respect, borders have always been and still are a limitation for others who have different ideas about living together. If the majority of immigrants believe that their religious commandments prevail over the rules of the host country, then this means nothing other than that they want to replace the existing order with another one. But this is not immigration, this is invasion. Whoever brings such people into his country in large numbers creates the conditions for a situation akin to civil war. However, neither regimes with the rule of God nor regimes with civil wars are characterized by particularly high rates of growth and innovation. Just as the invention of generally recognized private property had a highly peacemaking effect, so has the invention of geographical boundaries and their mutual recognition. Those who want to protect their way of life, their culture or their material and ideal values, those who want to live in peace, freedom and self-determination must keep those who do not outside. Otherwise, they will eventually make up a sufficiently large number and try to seize power. Protection of Acquired Rights The written and unwritten rules of a society, its institutions, its social system, and its infrastructure were usually built up and financed over a long period of time. 
Anyone who participated in this, even if it was through forced tax payments, has acquired a legal position similar to ownership. However, if additional users of these services come from outside without paying for them, less remains for the individual payer. This applies in particular to the social system. The same is true of other public services such as infrastructure, schools, kindergartens, hospitals, public roads and buildings, assistance abroad, embassies, consulates, and above all, security, police, army, border guards. Any successful system can absorb a certain number of immigrants, even unskilled ones, especially if they are willing to assimilate. But at some point, such immigration turns into a burden. Substantially more must then be invested in security at the expense of other areas. Social security systems are becoming increasingly insolvent. Old age provision, especially in pay-as-you-go systems, is weakening, and the entire infrastructure is being burdened by mass immigration, and the payments made by citizens are being devalued as a result. Such an immigration against the will of the resident population is, in fact, a partial expropriation of the same and thus a violation of property rights. If the circle of those entitled to such rights is extended by the government at will or even against applicable law, then it is imperative to expect resistance from those who have built up and financed these standards, including a civilized, peaceful environment built up over years and decades and whose claims are thereby diminished. Anyone who calls for the right of everyone to participate in this property-like legal position through immigration is in principle no different from a communist who calls for everyone to share their home and their assets with everyone in need. If the welfare state is abolished, or if immigrants are excluded from the right to social benefits, the problem will be eased but will not disappear. The burden on security and infrastructure remains, especially when people come who expressly want to abolish the existing system. No one can be expected to passively accept the destruction of his social order. The same applies in new societies. For example, if they recruited citizens on the premise of admitting only qualified and tested immigrants, a sudden departure from this principle would be seen by the existing citizens as an impairment of their rights. Maintaining Social Harmony Societies whose inhabitants have mutually exclusive basic beliefs are conflict-ridden, fragile, and achieve worse results than those based on shared basic values. In successful immigrant societies, immigrants assimilate over time. The willingness to do so is an obligation expected of all who come. At the very least, immigrants must respect the ideas and beliefs of the existing society. Otherwise, there will be considerable conflicts that are likely to destroy social harmony. Therefore, all successful immigrant societies at all times have demanded from their new citizens a certain amount of adaptation. Especially when their number is manageable, this works. Then, the pressure to adapt is there and the immigrants begin to assimilate themselves. But parallel societies of immigrants, such as the Amish or some Chinatowns, are also possible as long as they do not aggressively rebel against the rules of the society at large. It is an ancient achievement of civilization to respect the customs and traditions of foreign countries when you come there as a visitor or immigrant. When in Rome, 
do as the Romans do. On the other hand, those who regard the host society as inferior and refuse to observe certain rules and customs that are widespread, or even hold them in contempt, should not be surprised if the mood of the indigenous population becomes hostile. If there are large groups of people who are known to be violent and unwilling to integrate, then their presence will seriously disturb social harmony. With open borders, this process becomes uncontrollable. If most immigrants are recruited from such groups, small social policy adjustments, such as a renunciation of minimum wages, will no longer help. You have then imported a problem that you didn't have before. A right to immigration? Most people readily accept that there is no right to settle on property against the will of the landowner. In this case, however, the variant derived from this, namely that landowners and other residents join forces and agree on immigration rules for their entire area, must also be permissible. Here, too, freedom of contract must be regarded as an outflow of freedom of action. This can also be construed as a negative contractual freedom, that is, the right not to contract with someone. It is naive to see the solution in the sole right of the landowner to decide on immigration into his property. How do you even get to his property without going through the land of others who may own roads and airports and reject immigration? But even if this were possible, it would be easy for organized crime to acquire a large piece of forest land and accommodate a thousand burglars who then go on night raids to their neighbor's property. In reality, such models will sooner or later always lead to landowners uniting and creating a community that will then regulate and control immigration into a larger area. If countries like the U.S., Switzerland, or city-states like Singapore, Dubai, or Monaco were to open their doors to everyone, as intellectuals suggest, the following would happen. In a very short time, a huge trafficking industry would emerge, which, by ship and plane, would produce a never-ending stream of millions and millions, mainly of young men from developing countries, often attracted under false promises. It is therefore of secondary importance what benefits immigrants actually receive in the destination countries. Their mere number will massively overload the existing infrastructure, schools, hospitals, city centers. Since a large proportion of these immigrants do not speak the national language, often do not even know how to read or write, and have different ideas about work and discipline, only a minority will find gainful employment. The others, often marked by tribal or clan structures, will organize themselves into ethnic or religious groups and, if necessary, take what they need by force. Ever larger areas could only be entered under danger to life and limb. Resistance from the local population, too, will sooner or later become violent. There will be a comprehensive radicalization within the fragmented groups and in their mutual relations peaceful coexistence would be severely impaired. Economic output would go into decline. Even if other processes are theoretically conceivable, we get only one try. If this goes wrong, existing high cultures will be irrevocably destroyed. And whether this risk should be taken cannot be decided, in existing and new social orders, against the will of the local population, the ones who are mainly affected, and the bearers of attendant rights. 
The right to a self-determined life implies that I choose who I want to live with. Anyone who negates this should be prepared for considerable resistance. The Fallacy These people never intended to adopt our system of values and to abide by our legal system. All integration efforts had to fail from the outset. Karl Heinz Gartner, former chief commissioner on Arab clans in Berlin. The open border dogma, a typical intellectual brainchild, has what it takes to destroy within one or two generations civilizations that have taken more than a thousand years to grow. But where is the fundamental error of this teaching? It is the assumption that all people are equal and, if only the right institutions are established and some education is given to them, success will set in by itself. That would be nice, but it's probably not that easy. Imagine that the landlocked states of Switzerland and the Central African Republic would exchange all their populations, leaving behind all their assets and the respective institutions. What would happen? Switzerland would go down. The Central African Republic would blossom. Why is that so? Because the inhabitants of Switzerland and the CAR are so different, especially with regard to their cognitive competence. How and why this has developed so differently cannot and need not be decided here. Cultural influences, climate, geography, religion, genetic, and even epigenetic factors are all possible candidates, which may even influence each other in whatever proportion. Societies are complex entities that have developed unwritten rules of coexistence through culture, descent, assimilation, tradition, and lived social orders. Their members have the appropriate cognitive competence. Simply imposing a new order does not yet create a successful community. Positive developments are also possible in sub-Saharan Africa, as the examples of Botswana and Rwanda show. But take time, sometimes a very long time. My company was, at the time, building a tungsten mine in Queensland, Australia. Within the framework of the licensing procedure, seven jobs were contractually promised to the local Aborigines and also set up. After just three weeks, only one of the seven showed up for work. How can such a high failure rate be explained when Australia has undoubtedly created inclusive economic institutions that are also open to indigenous people? There must be other reasons. Another example. In Germany, parallel societies in the form of Arab clans have continued to expand for years. Their profession is drugs, extortion, and medication trafficking. Due to the family structures, the police are not able to infiltrate undercover investigators. Pressure is exerted on investigating officers. Witnesses and judges are threatened, as are the lawyers of injured parties. A lawyer reports that the brutality extends even to family members. He himself had learned that a head of a family had ordered the killing of two daughters. How can such structures be transformed into inclusive institutions? What will be stronger, the clan or the rules of the community? It should be noted that the children of these clans usually attend German public schools and receive at least, theoretically, the appropriate education and values that make up a functioning society. 
The right institutions, such as the guarantee of property rights, personal and economic freedoms, and the binding of administration to law and order, are therefore a necessary but not a sufficient criterion. Personal behavior, attitudes, and values are what make these institutions effective. Without self-discipline, diligence, recognition of principle of merit, self-criticism, the recognition of the primacy of legal principles over family ties, the renunciation of violence as a means of resolving disputes, the renunciation of revenge in favor of formalized court proceedings, and also the fundamental acceptance of the golden rule towards dissenters and disbelievers, it will be difficult to build a successful and prosperous society. It is difficult, if not impossible, to convey such values to people who come from completely different cultures and are unwilling to assimilate. Anyone who lets people from pre-modern civilizations into his country on a massive scale also welcomes in the behaviors of pre-modern civilizations on a massive scale. One will then import exactly what makes developing countries developing countries. The host society will itself gradually become a developing country. In order not to endanger the prosperity and stability of one's own social order, a pre-selection of immigrants is therefore indispensable. This applies to both existing and new systems. The mere fact that adults elsewhere bring more children into the world than they can feed or are unable to build a functioning society does not impose an obligation on other societies to accept them. Voluntary help is good, but it must and can be provided on the ground. More on this in Chapter 11. And a society can, of course, choose to accept unqualified immigrants of all kinds for humanitarian or other reasons. However, this is then an autonomous decision of the host society, not a legal claim of the immigrants. Even their motives, such as political asylum, cannot change this principle. In this regard, too, there can be no right to live at the expense of others. 6. What holds societies together? The liberal, secularized state lives on preconditions that it cannot guarantee by itself. Ernst Wolfgang Bockenford, legal philosopher and judge on the German Constitutional Court. The establishment of a legal and regulatory framework and the guarantee of security are necessary prerequisites for a functioning society. But are they also sufficient? In other words, do we need more forces of cohesion in order to achieve a permanently stable social order? The question is unresolved. Let us take a look at the various factors that may be relevant. Equality If we pretend that everyone is equal while they are not, the system will not work. This is a fact of life. Lee Kuan Yew, founder of Modern Singapore it follows from the fact that people are very different that equal treatment must lead to inequality in their actual positions and that the only way to put them in equal positions would be to treat them unequally. Equality before the law and material equality are mutually exclusive. Friedrich August von Hayek, Economist and Social Philosopher People are different, and in order to do justice to each individual, Everyone would have to be treated differently in every situation in life. 
Within the family and small group, it is possible to live together according to this pattern. The mother will treat her children quite differently, knowing about their abilities and differences. A flat-sharing community will take more consideration for less gifted flatmates, and so on. However, this model is only suitable for designing very small social spaces. The attempt to apply this pattern of care to all relationships that arise in anonymous mass societies is doomed to failure for lack of information about the respective characteristics of those affected. The obvious solution is therefore to subject all people to the same rules in large groups, regardless of the person or position. Equal rights for all, that is, equality before the law, is a necessary criterion for the lasting stability of a social order. Because nobody can do anything for his innate talent, but can do something about the arbitrary, unequal treatment of others. Again, the reciprocity manifested in the Golden Rule applies. Why should one be granted privileges and the other not? Nonetheless, unequal treatment may sometimes be necessary. It requires, however, a factual reason in the person of the individual concerned. For example, the rule that 12-year-olds are not allowed to drive a car is just as appropriate as the extension of the examination period for people with writing disabilities. The fact that some whites held black slaves in the past, however, does not justify a legal discrimination against all whites today or a preference for all blacks today. The crisis of Western systems is also due to the fact that the current dominant discourse allows these privileges into the system via the construction of victim groups, thereby undermining equality before the law. At the same time, while differences are emphasized, a common identity is destroyed. This is not going to work out. A widespread view is that inequality of wealth is a serious problem and the cause of many systemic crises. I doubt that. Can you, dear readers, not sleep at night for anger because Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, the Queen of England, or footballer Cristiano Ronaldo have so immeasurably more money than you? In fact, very few people seem to have a problem with this. They are more concerned about the immediate surroundings, siblings, neighbors, friends. If this peer group is, for whatever reason, more successful than oneself, or if one does not achieve the goals one has set in life, the probability is certainly higher that one will listen to the priests of social justice. In reality, however, one knows or senses that one's neighbor may have made better decisions, is more capable, or simply did the right thing at the right time. Envy is a constant companion of man, but basically most people can live with inequality. This is particularly true when there is some degree of equal opportunity, which means that what the neighbor is doing could have been done by me as well. If my neighbor is more qualified, I should have the opportunity to receive appropriate training and not be excluded from it for reasons unrelated to the subject, for example, because I have the wrong skin color or the wrong sex. Moreover, people are not the same and do not want to be the same. In Mao's time, when China was still an extremely egalitarian system, the uniforms in the People's Liberation Army were identical for everyone. There were no rank badges. The experienced captain wore the same uniform as the young corporal. Now this captain had not only more experience but also much more responsibility, for example as company commander. 
In fact, the communist officers and non-commissioned officers also wanted a visible sign of their position based on experience and performance. That is why the Chinese army reintroduced rank badges in 1988. We don't look the same, nor are we equally intelligent, diligent, talented, and so on. Contrary to popular belief, we are not even born the same, but inherit very different predispositions from our parents. Provided that people enjoy economic freedom, an inequality of financial circumstances will automatically arise under otherwise equal conditions. One could go even further and say that if all assets were confiscated tomorrow and then evenly distributed among all people, this unequal distribution of skills alone would mean that after a few years, there would once again be a comparatively diverse financial situation. But is that really a problem? Chinese sources report that for many families only one meal a day was available in the 1980s. Today, all Chinese throughout China can be supplied with more than enough food. During this period, inequality has increased according to the Gini coefficient, because the granting of economic freedom has ensured that the gifted could develop. It is unlikely that the Chinese want to return to the 1980s, despite there having been greater equality at that time. None of the last three German revolutions, 1848, 1918, and 1989, took place because of the inequality of wealth, but turned against the privileges of a ruling class and the denial of civil rights. Even in 1918, after the Social Democrats came to power, there was no redistribution of wealth. The attempt to banish envy from the world by creating equality is doomed to failure. For even if all were made materially equal, there would still be minute differences. Then these tiny differences would become the subject of envy. And why just look at differences in economic success? One has made a fortune, but the other looks good. A third is charming and popular, yet others are good musicians, athletes, or scientists. What about this inequality of different talents and abilities, or the difference in appearance? Shouldn't state redistribution also take place here? Isn't it socially unfair when the tall, handsome man gets many more and more beautiful women than the small, fat man? Shouldn't he share some of them with the fat one? Because behind the veil of ignorance, Rawls, he could also have been born as a short-grown pudge. Or perhaps the fat little man will be spurred on to do great things in other areas for the sake of self-esteem and because he can impress his environment and the women in this way. Isn't it precisely this disadvantage in certain areas that motivates us to explore and make the best possible use of our very own abilities and talents? In the end, each of us has a handicap or two. Throughout my life, I have met many people who were intelligent and talented, and yet made less of their lives than others who built up their own small craft business after high school and founded a family, were rooted and recognized in local associations, feeling comfortable with themselves and the world. People are so diverse and different, and the opportunities to be active in the most varied areas grow with technological progress and global networking. There are more and more niches. In this way, everyone can make the best of their abilities. If, under reasonable and equal rules for all, one person has great economic success and another does not, 
Is this not more acceptable to everyone than the granting of privileges to allegedly disadvantaged groups and general restrictions on freedom by the rulers? Especially since anyone who fails at one project can always try again to be successful on another. The assertion that all people are equal is not only a false, but the root of most political evils of modern times. Instead, the following must apply. Every human being is unique. Let them do the best they can and give them the freedom to do so. Justice and the Common Good The egalitarian society of social justice is an unlucky, a non-sensual, unerotic, totally unfriendly society. Jurgen Kessler, Cabaret Historian but shouldn't an orientation towards justice and the common good be an essential part of any social order? Let me give you an example. The first program conference of the New German Opposition Party, AFD, which had started as an alternative to the existing parties, reported that the party leader was able to assert herself by including in the new party program subsidies for the city orchestras she appreciated, since they were, according to her, an important cultural asset. This means, however, that if the AFD gets its way, 95% of people who never attend such concerts will have to finance the cultural enjoyment of the other 5%, and that's because the party leader needed the attention. Corresponding demands are also made by each established party. This brings us to a fundamental problem that will not be solved by democratic decision-making either. It begins with seemingly harmless things such as cultural subsidies and ends with the stipulation of what individuals should eat, what opinion they should have, and how they should have their children educated. Both are founded on justice and the common good. These terms suggest objective values which, however, cannot be determined or justified in practice. Statements in this regard do not stand up to critical scrutiny. If you leave the level of basic needs, then people have different values and also different life situations, different preferences and interests. What about a rock musician who has advanced contemporary music culture with his compositions but has passed the zenith of his popularity? Why shouldn't his concerts also be subsidized by the state? Or take this example. A state-prescribed minimum wage is intended to benefit the low-income earners but causes higher unemployment among them. Isn't the abolition of minimum wages more in the public interest? Or this, nuclear energy is a clean and inexpensive form of energy. Is it not therefore in the public interest to allow nuclear energy instead of banning it because of the fear of accidents? The list goes on. Does it serve the general public to do without genetically modified food, or should we rather promote it because it can save vast amounts of pesticides and feed more people? As so often, the answers depend on the observer's point of view and are ultimately questions of values and trade-offs. However, this is the case in all areas where the so-called common good is at issue. The assertion of an objective truth is, in this respect, actually only the statement of one's own subjective view. Those who appeal to the common good in this sense want to ensure that others do what they want. They claim for their own will a priority over the will of others. 
However, there can be no objectively common good beyond the satisfaction of basic needs or objective justice if we accept that we are different and therefore have different interests and values. There is therefore no need for action for all of us in this respect. Equally, egoists and hedonists, who can sustain themselves at their own expense and leave others alone, do not pose a problem. On the contrary, the problem are those who do forcibly squeeze resources out of others or set rules against their will in order to prevent supposed egoism and hedonism. The necessary core of justice as a state objective consists of the freedom from arbitrariness and the principle of equal treatment of citizens, in particular equality before the law. In other words, equal rights, but not equality in terms of results. Common Identity Unrestricted tolerance leads with necessity to the disappearance of tolerance. For if we extend unlimited tolerance even to intolerance, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant social order against the attacks of intolerance, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. We should therefore, in the name of tolerance, claim the right not to tolerate the intolerant. Karl Popper, Philosopher Singapore is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious community and fully aware that this is not an advantage but a challenge and difficulty. The concept of social harmony, also used here, stems from Singapore and describes the situation that the different groups of society can live not only peacefully side by side, but harmoniously together. This should indeed be the goal of any social order because it results in considerable gains in social and economic cooperation, also known as social capital. Communities that share a common identity, whether based on descent, culture, language, or religion, or even all of them together, have an easier time creating social harmony. Values and actions that all consider to be right have been imprinted and established for centuries, if not for thousands of years. Immigrants have fully assimilated themselves. That creates cohesion. The more homogeneous a society is, the easier it is for things to be implemented that require the consensual cooperation of everyone. These include social security systems based on reciprocity and joint efforts in times of war and crisis. The question is whether a common identity is imperative for the functioning of a society. The United States is a prime example of how even heterogeneous immigrant societies can succeed, at the expense of the indigenous population, admittedly. However, as Alexis de Tocqueville pointed out long ago, it should be noted that in the case of the USA in particular, a new common identity has been created which citizens were particularly keen to observe. Recently, this principle seems to have been given up, and we will all see what the result will be. The notion that diversity of ethnicities and cultures in one system is an advantage, which is popular today, is ultimately only an unproven claim. Nobody knows whether societies like the Japanese or Korean, which explicitly demand cultural and ethnic homogeneity, are not superior in the long run. It seems plausible that the more different people are, the more difficult cooperation is. 
However, predictions from the 1980s that Germany and Japan, for example, would overtake the U.S. economically because of their homogeneity have also not come true. A major reason for this is that the U.S. has simply attracted talent from all over the world and managed to integrate everyone into its system. So it is apparently possible without ethnic homogeneity, at least as far as there is a guiding, overarching culture that is binding for everyone. Of course, it is in no way conducive to the prosperous coexistence of people to force concepts that are incompatible with one another together by means of a rotten compromise. All attempts to do so are comparable to the idea of getting a red wine lover and a white wine lover to consume rosé. Both then have something with which they are latently dissatisfied. Those who believe that property is theft cannot create a meaningful intersection with someone who believes that private property is a prerequisite for prosperity and freedom. Whoever believes that all the rules of his religion originate directly from God and therefore take precedence over all human actions cannot create a meaningful intersection with someone who believes that rules must be made by men according to rational standards and that they must apply to everyone, including members of religion. The creation of a common identity, and thus of social capital, is not possible under such contrary conditions. Cohesion. Many roads lead to Rome. How can this integration be accomplished, or how can social harmony be achieved in new communities? Basically, there are three possibilities. Either you accept only members of a certain ethnic, cultural, or religious group, or you try to establish a new common identity, or you leave it with the different groups. But then you take other measures to ensure that the relationships between the groups remain stable. Singapore goes the latter way, which even determines how high the respective proportion of Chinese, Malay, or Indians may be per residential block. The city-state encourages the different ethnic groups to continue to cultivate their own culture and language in addition to the compulsory language English. In addition, there are joint military conscription, extensive social programs, and targeted support for certain groups. Leaving the special situation of Singapore aside, the question arises as to whether this effort is necessary. Dubai is an example of how a community can be successful and in demand without any forces promoting ethnic, religious, and cultural cohesion. How is that possible? One view is that there is no need for common values, only laws that everyone must respect. That's a little short of the point. If, in a society, for example, there is no longer general agreement about allowing dissenting opinions, worldviews, and lifestyles, then even respective laws will be of no use. The group in power will eventually cause the laws to be changed in terms of their values. This is ultimately also the reason for the increasing social disintegration of Western countries. Those who want to sanction views and behavior that deviate from their own ideas have prevailed. This is already indicated by the concept of political correctness. In a pluralistic society, there can be no such thing, since the assessment of what is correct and what is not naturally varies from person to person. A basic consensus is therefore needed in such a way that a pluralistic society is desirable and those who want to abolish it are undesirable. And so it is also in Dubai. 
The degradation of other religions or the work of hate preachers are not tolerated there. In addition to the tax advantages, European or American immigrants to Dubai mentioned the possibility of being able to operate economically without major hurdles. The fact that one enjoys extensive freedom of action, is left alone by the state, and is not bothered with all sorts of politically correct behavioral guidelines and redistribution programs. Dubai appears to be so attractive that immigrants even accept the application of Sharia law, which is usually not enforced, but sometimes is, and also the fact that they are not granted citizenship and indirectly have to pay for citizens who have extensive privileges with regard to housing, pensions, and health insurance. See Chapter 9, Dubai. There are therefore indications that an attractive regulatory framework is sufficient to establish a successful community as long as the basic consensus thus created is not changed again by the respective rulers. The content of this framework can be very different. Of course, it has not been proven that the relatively new entities, USA, Singapore, or Dubai, will survive the 21st century. The opening quotation by Bakkenford means, in this respect, that for the continued existence of a free, secular community, there must be a corresponding basic conviction among the citizenry, because the state cannot force such a community on anyone. If it did, it would no longer be a free community. The erosion of the rule of law in Germany and elsewhere, for example, shows that this is not an unfounded fear. There are two ways of countering the Bakkenford dilemma. On the one hand, people who reject the existing order are not allowed to immigrate in the first place. And on the other hand, those who violate freedom, such as political or religious extremists, are expelled from the country. This is easy if they have immigrated and have a different nationality. City-states like Singapore, Dubai, or Monaco handle this accordingly. However, the case of expatriation and expulsion of one's own citizens is also conceivable if a corresponding agreement has been concluded with another state. Expulsion or non-renewal of the right of residence is, of course, a significant interference with the rights of the persons concerned. But if the mechanism is known in advance, the facts of the case are clearly defined, and the measure is subject to judicial review, then this does not change the overall character of a free system. Anyone who rejects this out of supposed liberality, that is, shows tolerance towards intolerance, should not be surprised if his system is replaced by another after some time. Of course, it is not possible to maintain a system of freedom in the long term if a large majority of the inhabitants reject it. However, since this does not happen overnight, the question always arises as to how the change of mind came about and whether this could not have been prevented. Today, mobility is greater than in the past, and there is the possibility of a large number of like-minded people coming together to create and defend new communities based on shared fundamental values. If at some point their living together doesn't work out, the last safety valve left will be secession. Humans are and will remain herd animals and have a need for community and belonging. This can arise from ethnic, cultural, or religious homogeneity, but it does not have to. Pure communities of values and consensus are also conceivable, which then develop their own identity and culture over time.